Welcome, everyone, to episode 81 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're saying our final goodbye to the fantastic year that was 2019 with the second annual Some Like It, Scott Awards. I couldn't do it with anyone else, and so with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, even though the Oscars got it right with Best Picture this year, are you ready to finally give credit to all the different 2019 movies that credit is due to? Did they get it right? Uh, stay tuned for my thoughts on that question. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> neither, of us, neither of us are going to say, oh, no, that's not true. I will say. I will say best, though I will choose the Oscars. Uh, no, I, I, I'm happy to be here, though, Scott. I have my tuxedo on, as you can see, and my my li- the listeners, of course, cannot. Um, and yeah. that's a shame because I think I look quite good in this tuxedo. Yeah. I rented um, a tux just for this. Yeah, exactly. Same here. I don't. I don't own one. I'm a poor law student, um, and so I'm excited to uh, to crack open some champagne and listen to some speeches tonight. Hopefully, things won't get too political. Um, we decided to go uh, with two hosts this year. Uh, you know, it doesn't always work. Like the Oscars, obviously, Anne Hathaway and, and James Franco was. It, it didn't go so well, but um, hopefully, it will go a little bit better than that. I think uh, we don't have much of a, a bar to uh, to step over to beat them. So that's nice. Yeah, and they'll have to. The listeners will have to excuse us. I'm probably just going to play some stand-up from Mrs. Maisel uh, as the opening. I'm sure we could find some clip out from there to that'll work as our as our opening monologue. I, I told you, I think my favorite joke was when she says, uh, "Men are allowed to fail and women aren't." Why is it uh, w- when a man fails, they say, "Well, at least you gave it the old college try." When a woman fails, they say. Uh, at least you gave it the old college try, but should you really be in college? That was the one that made me laugh for some reason. That's season yeah. three, though. So. That isn't season three? Okay, yeah. for some reason I thought I remembered hearing that in season two. I just watched the first episode of season three last night, actually. So Exciting. I'm I'm almost there. I'm almost caught up. Give it a few more weeks, and, I'm, and I might be all the way there. Uh, but forgetting TV for the time being, because we are not here tonight to talk about TV. We are here <clears> to talk about movies We've talked about 20, 2019 so much. We've sung the praises of 2019 a whole lot over the course of this year, and deservedly so. But that is all reaching its pinnacle tonight with the second Some Like It Scott Awards. And to get started, we might as well just go ahead and, and jump right in. We have to be cognizant the, and not run over our four-hour runtime like the Oscars sometimes does. Mm-hmm. So we might as well jump right into it, and we'll start with – I don't know if this is always the first award given at the Oscars. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not. But we're going to start with Best Visual Effects. Scott, where are some of your – uh, honorable mentions. Yeah, I went with two. I mean, Avengers Endgame, I think, is the obvious choice here. They um, they spend the most money on the visual effects, probably, of any movie, so they should probably have some of the best visual effects, and I think that, that was definitely the case this year, uh, even though they didn't take on the Oscar. Uh, Gemini Man was another movie that I went with. Um, obviously, not a lot of people liked this movie, but I think from a visual effects perspective, it was pretty revolutionary with what it did for de-aging technology, even before uh, we saw The Irishman, which I guess caught caught more attention because of the de-aging. I think it, it other than one shot at the end of Gemini Man, it, it worked really well. And Gemini Man was and was even doing a, a little bit different from The Irishman in terms of having uh, like 
the actual Will Smith interacting with the de-aged version of himself, which uh, I think, again, is pretty cutting edge and it all looked great. And the action scenes also had some great effects in them. Um, so I really enjoyed Gemini Man. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely a good shout. One of the ones that Gemini Man uh, reminded me of, thats it's not a visual, it's not really a visual effect, but one of the things that I think is why I that wouldn't necessarily say Gemini Man for this, uh, because it running more of this is just, it, I think it actually accentuates the performance of Will Smith, right? So, I mean, we saw it also in Us earlier this year with Lupita Nyong'o playing two characters on the screen at the same time, saw it in Gemini Man. And I think that, yes, definitely the visual effects are good, but the fact that they're interacting at the same time on screen, one of the things that just stands out to me is that, you know, you're acting up against, uh, you know, someone that's not actually there in the scene with you. And so it really, it does accentuate the the performances. And uh, again, good shout because the de-aging technology, I, I wish I'd loved that movie uh, even more. I wish I'd been with an audience that loved, that was at least a little bit respectful to that movie. Uh, I can't remember. I told you that story, right? Yeah. 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 Just an abysmal People crowd. Laughing Pro- the whole time. Probably the worst crowd that I saw the movie with. Uh, this year by far and like not even close mm-hmm. um, but yeah uh, was was a bummer I wonder if I'd like the if I would have liked the movie more if I hadn't been so annoyed with the crowd I also had Avengers Endgame on my um, on my honorable mentions list it's one of those things where you know usually like you said biggest budget for VFX you're gonna get some of the best VFX but it doesn't always create the most original VFX which is why it what it does just get held back on the honorable mentions list and it's probably why a superhero movie hasn't apparently won best visual effects I didn't realize this since like 2004 or 2003 <laughs> Spider-Man 2 it hasn't won the uh, an, a superhero movie hasn't won best visual effects at the Oscars since Spider-Man 2 which is a pretty a pretty remarkable uh, statistic if you think about the the movies that are spending the most on visual effects uh, not actually winning. of course that doesn't count for Star Wars which is not a comic book movie uh, which might be in the kind of typical genre wheelhouse of a VFX. But that being said, Scott, we both do have uh, the same winner in this case. But before we get to that, I do have one honorable mention here that, that's a little bit unique, and that's Alita Battle, Battle Angel, one of the movies from earlier this year that sometimes it's easy to forget <laughs> that it came out in, in 2019 just because uh, it came out at the beginning. It came out around Valentine's Day, and it got a mixed reception. I was a huge fan of it. Um, for its merits, I, I did think it had some negatives, but one of the strong points I think was Rosa Salazar's performance and the visual effects uh, that they're able to perform on her, uh, not de-aging necessarily, but of course making her look like uh, Alita, make her look with the big eyes, the robotic body. I think all of that uh, was really cool. And then the world they created with the visual <coughs> effects, because of course most of most of that city, whose name I've already forgotten to be fair, um, is almost entirely VFX uh, heavy. Um, almost entirely made by VFX. So really good job there from James Cameron. It just proves that he's a really good world builder. He just needs someone to write his scripts for him. Yeah, I wish I actually probably should have included this one too. I agree with what you said. I, I think the world was the most interesting part of that movie for sure. Yeah, but like I am like I teased already, we do have the same winner. And you know what? We also have the same winner who won the Oscar. And that is, of course, 1917. Scott, I'll let you say your piece first. Yeah, no, I think obviously the the technical part of this movie that's getting a lot of love is Roger Deakins' cinematography. But I think that maybe people are sort of lumping everything in when they're thinking about the cinematography. Uh, and that actually the visual effects is where a lot of the most impressive work is done in this movie with hiding the transitions, making it look really seamless uh, and, and, you know, making adding to that one shot effect. And the fact that, you know, it, it all does appear to be in one shot. Of course, it's not. But that's because of the magic of the visual effects, right? Um, I think that 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 again, that is the main area where uh, that type of work is done. And yeah, I mean, the, it it definitely contributes uh, in an immense way to the immersive atmosphere of this movie. And uh, the fact that they were able to pull this off and and 
make the movie compelling, uh, not just a technical spectacle, um, I think speaks to uh, what a great job the visual, the VFX artists did on this movie. I mean, there may not have been a better job uh, in terms of VFX, uh, a more impressive feat in the last few years, honestly, than what the, the folks here did with 1917. So that's an easy choice for me. Yeah, I also thought it was, a, it was a pretty easy choice, and I I would echo every everything that you've said, and, and then add a couple things to it as well. First, again, echoing, I don't think that there is any movie in the last few years that has that has captivated me the way these visual effects, and, and I think that is why you know the casual moviegoer might be surprised that a movie like 1917 wins in a category like best visual effects when you don't necessarily think of like you've laid out here, you know, very eloquently uh, uh, it as a visual effects masterpiece, but it really is that when you go back and look at you know some of the uh, behind the scenes sort of stuff of what it actually looks like when they're filming it. Because it like like the opening scene, for example, I say the opening scene, that's a little bit of a of a blurred thing. But when they go over, you know, just over into no man's land for the first time, you know, that horse isn't even there. And it, it, it's like a dummy body to put the visual effects in. So it, you know, that's an example, you know, you have the the oh the church scene later on after after of course uh in the in the kind of in the final act of the movie, you have the burnt, you know, the huge church that's on fire. And that, of course, they did not light a huge building on fire to make that scene. Uh, that's a part of it. And then, you know, all the explosions happening in the in the climax of that movie. Those are just small examples of some of the visual effects that are taking place. And, and the whole production value of this film, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about the cinematography later. Uh, you know, not not to tease what wins and what doesn't win, but of course it will come up as, either as an honorable mention or a win there. And it's uh, when you combine all those different factors together, it's just an absolutely an absolute marvel of, of a film from a visual effects perspective, from a cinematography perspective, from a production design perspective. Everything about this film works for me. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, Scott, I'd say that's going to be one of the easier ones. Probably not the only easy one for us, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, move on to that next one that I was talking about, best cinematography. Scott, any honorable mentions you have for this? Yeah, a lot of good choices in this category this year. Uh, Pavel Pogorzelski for Midsommar, obviously. I mean, the, the atmosphere that he created uh, inside the, the Swedish cult was uh, bar none this year. Um, it, it speaks to what a great year it was that I couldn't go with this as the winner. Uh, Edward Lackman for Dark Waters, I think. Not a movie necessarily where the cinematography will jump out to you in the way that other movies on this list do, but I think the dark gray color palettes and everything that he uses really adds to the like sickly feel of this movie, right? <laughs> Which, I mean, it definitely goes along with what this movie is about, right? People getting sick from the water. There's just a sense of dread throughout the movie. And I think that um, the cinematography by Edward Lackman, who shoots all of Todd Haynes' movies, um, really contributes to that. Yeah, Mike it's all Del about setting the atmosphere. It's like the, the color palette, not unlike Little Women's cinematography right. as well. It really just sets the tone for the movie the right way. Totally. Um, Mike Jalakis for Under the Silver Lake. His work with David Robert Mitchell is always exceptional. Um, and again, talk about creating an atmosphere. He does that with this lush sort of sun-kissed Hollywood cinematography. But also, you know, as we see in the movie, the uh, there's something lurking beneath the surface. A really well-shot movie. And then Drew Daniels for Waves. Um we talked a lot about the cinematography. I guess we never reviewed this, but uh, between the two of us, Scott, um, but there's some beautiful shots in this movie. And also, um, you know, the, the camera technique of swirling around that we saw this camera technique in a few movies this year, obviously in Mid Midsummer, we saw it too with the May Queen sequence, but um, swirling around the car as people are driving just adds to the anxiety um, that this movie 
builds throughout throughout in, in certain scenes, particularly in the first half of the movie. And so um, shout out to Drew Daniels for that. So those are my honorable mentions. Yeah, Drew Daniels is the first one that came to my mind for an honorable mention as well. He, he, if not for the entire movie, just for those individual scenes that you're talking about, there are definitely some beautiful landscape shots uh, in, in it for sure of, of you know, the, the countryside, especially during the back half of the movie where I think the movie as a whole falters a little bit, but the cinematography, I think in that portion works really well. But yeah, the, the standout moment even, I'd say even greater than any single moment um, in terms of camera techniques, I want to be, I want to emphasize camera techniques, um, probably, probably the best moment of cinematography of the year is, and you know, the two or three times where you do get that uh, camera rotating on a, on an axis, just spinning around the car. You can't see what's in front of the car and you know whatever's going on feels a little bit reckless. And I, I <clears throat> in a single moment, I, it was like just white knuckle grip on the on the chair during those scenes. And so that was just some great standout moments from Waves. Uh, as much as we don't love to talk about this film on the podcast, uh, hopefully this, this episode is the last time we ever mentioned on the podcast again. Uh, but I, I do wanna give credit where credit is due for Lawrence Cher. Uh, for the film Joker, that is the cinematography does really work well for setting the tone and atmosphere that they were trying to go for with this movie. Unfortunately, so many other components of it don't work as well. well we can talk about another component that does work well later, the only other component of the movie that I would say that works well a little bit later on. But for me, the cinematography, uh, a lot of those low, low shots looking up, angled upwards, I think it just really sets the tone really well. And again, the color palette of Gotham seems to work for the tone that the movie's going for. Uh, just unfortunate that the rest of the movie couldn't deliver on uh, the best parts of it. Yeah, you're not going to get me to say anything good about this movie. I'm sorry. That's fine. I understand, Scott. But, you know, I alluded to it a little bit already, and uh, we are again united in our winner for this category. Scott, I will let you uh, take the lead on this one. Roger Deakins, baby. Uh, yeah, 1917 again wins in this category. Again, it's an obvious choice here, I think. Um, taking the whole one-shot technique out of it, I think, because we talked about that with visual effects. There's just some of the most stunning shots that I've seen in movies in a long time in this movie. I, t I mean, I talked about when we reviewed the movie, the flares at night sequence and when when George Mackay comes up over the stairs and you, you see the ruins and the the flares going on in the background I mean that's one of the best shots that I've ever seen in a movie to be quite honest um, but I mean that whole sequence is beautifully shot the church on fire again um, and, and George Mackay in the foreground and just throughout the movie um, the the way that it again immerses you in both the like beauty doesn't seem to be the right word but i mean there are beautiful moments in the in the movie but also the the agony and the darkness of what's going on in war again i don't understand the critiques about this movie not being anti-war enough i think some of the early scenes in particular when they're going through like the no man's land areas and stuff and um there's body through a german right he puts his hand right in the guy uh, and there's you know bodies all over the place and stuff like that uh I think that it, it serves some really haunting shots early in the movie. And I think that Deacons for, for obvious reasons has kind of become a household name in the world of cinematography and he's brilliant. Yeah. We could have a whole episode on, on how outrageous the claim is that the movie is not anti-war uh, when you have the scenes that you have in this film, but uh, that's another, that's another episode, another conversation. Uh, hopefully we'll never have to have that because no one will ever tell me that the movie to my face is not anti-war enough. Uh, but that being said, agreed. 1917, Roger Deakins. Uh, glad that in, you know, in his latter years, I'm not saying he's retiring anytime soon, but his latter years, he's finally getting the credit that he deserves because, you know, like we talked about whenever we've talked about Blade Runner 2049 and his first Oscar win for that, he'd been nominated 14 times before that took his, 
took his 15th nomination, I think, or a 14th nomination, whichever it was for Blade Runner 2049, to finally get that credit that he deserved. And he gets it again here for 1917. And honestly, that would have been the most outraged I could have probably been on Oscars night if he hadn't won. I mean, maybe if Joker or some, something like that had happened, that'd be more outraged. But uh, Deacon's winning for best cinematography for me is just an absolute slam dunk. And I don't know if I have anything else to add because yeah. I definitely talked about it a lot already. <laughs> yeah. All right, Scott, moving on to the, the musical side of things. We're doing two categories here and we'll start with best original song. Scott, uh, do you have any honorable mentions for this category? Uh I will, I will throw one out there. I don't think there are any legitimate honorable mentions, but one that I really did enjoy um, that is just a really fun song is Super Cool, which is the in credit song from the Lego movie part two, the second part. Um, that is, it's Beck, Robin, and the Lonely Island. I think it's right up there with everything is awesome. Honestly, it's a really hilarious song in the end credits about end credits and how uh, you should stay for the end credits and giving shout outs to all the random artists and stuff that you see in the, um, in the end credits. It's it's a really fun, catchy song that really, you know, fits with the zippy vibe that uh, I love about those Lego movies so much. So I don't think there's any real honorable mentions because for me, there's a clear and obvious winner but uh if i had to choose one that would be that yeah i'd actually forgotten about that that's a good shout i hadn't i had forgotten about that credit song because that was i i did really enjoy that in the theater you know into the unknown was a good song i really enjoyed that from frozen 2 but to me scott just nothing stands up to what should be the winner this year including the oscar winner this whichever elton john song it was um from rocket man that i thought was not an original song but apparently was an original song um, I'm gonna love me again. Wasn't that the name of it? Sure, I'll take your word for it. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have to say that you know, you think back to last year with *A Star Is Born*, and you know, forget the the quibbles about you know which song should have been the one that was nominated and won the Oscar. I think that that is that is the type of music that should be winning for best original song. It's it's those types of performances, those types of songs. And there was such an obvious one, again, forgetting the debate about what, whether you think, you know, A Star Is Born's music was better than, um, than you know, this song or, or this or this um, movie songs. But the point is, is that it's that type of music that you'd expect to grab the Academy's attention. And just something about this movie fell completely under the radar. And somehow the Academy missed the song. And I really just don't understand how it happened. Because again, we both have, uh, again, we are united in, in our winner for this category, and that, of course, is uh, for the song Glasgow. And it uh, won't be the f the last time we talk about this movie today, Scott, but I'll let you take take the reins here. Yeah, no, I mean, I was talking about this with a couple of other fellow movie fans last night. We were talking about how the, some of the best movie songs of recent year, including Glasgow, are really good because the lyrics are actually about the movie. Um, the movie uh like that the the lyrics describe a lot of the journey that the characters go on and over the course of the movie a star is born being another example i think where there are um you know songs that where the lyrics mirror the events of the movie um it's not detached from the movie in that way um and i mean that's no better example than glasgow from wild rose i think that uh this song is obviously at the very end of the movie and if you listen to the lyrics of the song you're hearing the plot of the movie. You're hearing the emotional journey that uh, Jesse Buckley's Rosalind has gone on over the course of this movie, trying to reconcile her dreams of being a country singer with her um, 
own life of uh, living in Glasgow, having children, having her mother there, um, and, and trying to reconcile those two things. That is really what drives the plot in this movie. Um, and it's just a beautifully written song. Mary Steenburgen, an Oscar-nominated actress, uh, actually wrote the song. Um, and there's a, a good story behind it that you should look into. But um, it's a it's a beautiful song, uh, one of my favorite movie songs of the last decade. And uh, it has an incredible singer in Jesse Buckley, um, you know, who giving giving voice to it, I think I can't imagine this song being sung by anyone else. I, there's a video I was watching just the other day of her performing this at the BAFTA Awards. I guess it did what well, did get nominated at the BAFTAs. Um, Makes but sense. she performed an acoustic version basically, and with just her and like one other person playing a guitar, and you can just see the crowd shots. Everybody was spellbound, and I love seeing some of the reactions at the end. Florence Pugh was really loving it. Um, it, it was it, it speaks to the power of the song, even if the Academy didn't recognize it. So Glasgow, easy choice. Yeah, for me, again, just going back, it just feels like it's an it should be a slam dunk. Like when we when we watched the movie, we didn't review it on the podcast, but when we both saw this movie, we're like. Like this, this, there's nothing else that's going to top it this year in terms of song, and nothing did, nothing did. And to give Rocket Man credit, like Rocket Man is a song about the plot of the film, and like, like I will give it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not here to crap on that song. That's I, true. Like, it, it was a good song. I just didn't realize it was an original song um, at the time, which is why I was like, well, I feel like if I'm not realizing it's an original song, then what, what was the point then? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a weird perspective to take on the category, but to me, I think that again, this just felt, felt like a slam dunk because of the emotional impact of the song because it's one thing to listen to that song without having seen the movie which you know maybe some people at the baptist hadn't seen wild rose and was listening to it the first time and were spellbound because it, that's the power of the song but it gets a whole new dimension when you've seen the movie you go through that emotional journey with jesse buckley's character rosalind and then you get to the end of that song and i remember just being totally swept away at the end of that movie by that song by that performance and i'd heard the song before i before going to the theater because i'd watched I think I'd watched her on the Graham Norton show or something performing it or something like that when she was doing a little press tour. Uh, maybe it was even Jimmy Kimmel um, on a, uh, doing the press tour before Wild Rose released. And I was like, oh, this is, this is a really good song. And then at the end of the movie, it was just a whole, a whole different level uh, when it was actually integrated into the film. And, and that's exactly the kind of song that should be winning uh, Best Original Song, which is why we went with it. Couldn't agree more. And if you haven't heard it, go check it out. In fact, check out the entire Wild Rose soundtrack. I own it on vinyl. I listen to it all the time. Uh, it's got a great collection of a couple original songs in addition to Glasgow and just some country covers. So Je Jesse Buckley just owns every song on this soundtrack. Yeah, she's a, she's a great singer in general. And I look forward. I mean, I haven't seen Judy. She's in Judy. I don't know if she sings in Judy or not or has a moment. Probably. I mean, maybe, maybe not, actually. But I'm looking forward to things that she has in the future as an actress as an actress, but also, you know, roles that she might get where she's able to, to flex those vocal, those vocal cords uh, some more. Cause she's, she's really fantastic at it. Yeah. All right. It's got next category. I promised two uh, musical categories and the next categories, original score, any honorable mentions for best original score? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Thomas Newman for 1917. Yeah. Again, I think a lot of the great scenes in this movie, including the flare sequence that I love so much, um, are accented by the music that track the night window off of the 1917 um, score is definitely one of the best, you know, orchestral tracks that you'll hear this year from a movie. Um, it's, you know, pretty epic. Um, and I, I think Thomas Newman sets the the vibe really well. Uncut Gems is one that um, definitely stood out to me, Daniel Lopatine, and this really glitchy sort of synthy score um, that 
builds the anxiety in this movie without you even realizing it sometimes, you know, fitting it right in with the sound design in this movie, uh, which is also so impressive. And then under the Silver Lake, again, uh, disaster piece. I think, again, that whole that that trio of Mitchell, Jalakis and disaster piece, uh, that trio of artists can do no wrong in my book. And the sort of lush um, orchestral score that we get um, in under the Silver Lake kind of belying the the sinister nature of some of the stuff that's going on i really enjoy and it also has one of my favorite moments in the score where he holds up the the nintendo power map or whatever and there's like a little sound that so sounds like you've you know you've which is one in a video game or something that just like perfectly matches up what's going on in the movie well, isn't, so. it, isn't it the actual zelda music it might be i don't know um yeah. i i wouldn't know that off the top of my head yeah. but uh it has it has that feel to it even if it's not so uh, shout out to Disaster Piece for that. Rich Freeland is the guy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, Scott. You you know you mentioned there one of my honorable mentions. And that's uh, Daniel Lopatine for Uncut Gems. It's a, a soundtrack that, at first, I think when you first start watching the movie and you get that opening soundtrack, you're like, well, this is kind of a a bit of a trippy kind of soundtrack for a movie that feels like it's going to be pretty grounded. And over the course of the film, the contrast uh, of the soundtrack. And the score, I guess there's didn't say soundtrack, the score, I don't think there's really any soundtrack to it. Actually, that's not true, there is. Anyway, um, it, the the contrast of the score, of Lopatine's score with what's going on in the film, I think it really it really makes you think about what's happening a little bit more. And I mean, that's a weird thing to say, but because it doesn't necessarily just blend into the background and doesn't just become wallpaper to the movie, it adds so much more to it. It feels like another character sometimes in certain scenes. And the ethereal nature of it in certain moments when it when it does kick up and and really dive into them with the more ethereal side of the score it, you always know something something important is happening something reflective uh whether that's a big loud bombastic moment that it then wants you to reflect on or whatever it might be uh, again i think that the score then this really affected me i think more the second time i saw it but the score just really works uh, for this film i was a little bit skeptical the first time because i thought the ethereal nature of it was almost too con you know almost too contrasted to what's going on on screen but the second time it just clicked for me i don't know what it was but it seemed to all come together and i really loved it yeah the only other one which i won't make you dwell too briefly on is my other mention of joker on this episode because ilder gunadotir uh her i did not pronounce that correctly there's no way um but her you score, said it with confidence you shouldn't have I undermined did. yourself yeah, yeah. well there it is uh i think she did an amazing job scoring joker i know this apparently there are some at least in, within my twitter feed there are some people who are vocal about the score not being very good i know you're one of them scott i was gonna <laughs> you don't mind getting called out for that one but there's some people who are negative. Me, but yeah. yeah there's some people who are negative about the score and i just am not sure that i get it because i think the score really works the very i don't know if it's orchestral cello basic very, very strings heavy score i think really works really works for me. It pairs with the cinematography really well. But again, the problem being nothing else really pairs with the cinematography and the score here very well. And, <coughs> you know, I don't know if, I mean, I do know. I would not have picked uh, this this score to win Best Original Score at the Oscars. And, and it's not my winner tonight either. But I will say it was a really great piece of work. And if, you know, you're less enchanted by her work in Joker, go watch Chernobyl. She does the score for Chernobyl, and that's absolutely magnificent as well. So uh, she's really something special, I think, and I think we're going to see her around uh, the best original score category a lot over the next uh, couple decades. I think you're probably right. Yeah. All right, Scott, what do you have winning best original score? 
Little Women, Alexander Desplat. Um, definitely not the first time you'll hear me talk about this movie today. But uh, yeah, I mean, this score is so beautiful. It has that warmth to it that I think is full of that that the entire movie is full of. There, there, when I think back about some of my favorite moments in this movie, I, the music. I think I think about the music playing along with the moments, like from the very beginning with Joe running through the streets after she sells her story to Mr. Dashwood in the opening scene, that way that that first track on the soundtrack kicks in is wonderful at the end, right? When she's going to the train station, that track it's romance is so beautiful. Um, and it, you know, continues on through that final sequence where they're all there at the, the school that they've opened up. Um, and it's sort of this idyllic, you know, dream, maybe almost dreamlike scenario that we see at the end um, with everyone together. But yeah, I mean, this this score hits all of the right notes. Again, it's it's just as beautiful as everything else about Little Women is. So uh, yeah, I had to go with this one. I've been listening to it a ton recently. Yeah, Little Women. I mean, it's a great shout. I, I didn't end up mentioning it on either my honorable mentions or winner, but this is one that I think, like Uncut Gems, really worked for me, really clicked for me the second time I watched it because I did see Little Women's for a second time. Um, during the Best Picture Showcase that I went and saw at AMC. And again, the score, like, like you said, I think it, it just really accentuates all of the best parts of that movie. And I, and I think that not unlike uh, what I was just talking about with Joker, I think it, it matches and pairs so well with the cinematography and the whole production design of the movie, whether it's the color palette uh, of the film, which does change over different time periods and uh, different areas that you're in. And then as well, this, what you call maybe a dreamlike sequence at the end. I, after having watched the second time, I have a stronger opinion on what I think uh, the end of the movie is actually being, but we don't necessarily have to dive into that. Uh, I do want to hear that opinion though. Yeah, no, well, well, let's talk about it off air. Um, this probably isn't the place. Uh, it's not like, it's not a negative thing whatsoever. I just, have, I think I have a more uh, concrete opinion about what I think it, that it means, but yeah, no, the score really, really works well. Um, Alexander Desplat, definitely, you know, if his name had been called on Oscar night, that would have been awesome. Um, but alas, not, not to be, I still haven't seen Shape of Water, which is one of the more recent ones that he won for. Yeah. Okay. Well, my winner, Scott, and you know, you mentioned it already, but I have so much more to add about it is Thomas Newman's score for 1917 already. You know, you can tell how much of a 1917 shill I am, how much I love this movie. Uh, this year. Uh, it's not it's not changing here. I think the score is absolutely amazing. Again, seeing people on Twitter talk about this score about being how it like, feels like it takes you right out of the movie every time it kicks in. And honest to God, I have no idea what these people are talking about. I think that the score matches perfectly from the second it kicks in, which is when they walk out of you know the underground bunker and they've talked to uh, they've got you know they've gotten their mission, they talk to it, they walk out. He had, you know, George Mackay turns to Dean Charles Chapman and is like, all right, let's talk about this. Dean Charles Chapman says what about turns and starts walking, the music kicks in and it's just the score is perfect from start to finish uh, from there. Absolutely love this score. One of my favorite scores of the decade. <sighs> um, I'd have to think about wh where it does actually rank in the, in the best scores of the decade, because this was a really special one. Yeah, it's great. It was an honorable mention for me for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, moving right along. We we're really moving quickly here and I love it. Uh, we're not like the Oscars. Uh, best original screenplay. Yes, uh, a couple honorable mentions here for me. Loose, I thought, had a really smart script. Uh, Julius Ona adapting this from a play. Um, really button-pushing with some of the topics that it tackles in terms of race and class and how we perceive uh, people based on race and class, maybe. Um, I, I really liked what, uh, what Julius Ona did. Here, um, Knives Out, obviously, Ryan Johnson, a gifted writer, maybe even more so than he is as a director. Um, and he created a whodunit, like a, a fun drawing room whodunit, a fun mystery that also has some 
very biting political satire in it. Um, and, you know, ultimately, again, get, leaves us with a message that wouldn't have expected to get from this movie, but one that everyone, I think, definitely needs. And hope, hopefully they're picking up on the message in this movie um, because obviously this movie absolutely destroyed at the box office. Um, and so I hope that everyone who is seeing it and seeing it multiple times is, is getting that aspect of it. And finally, Midsummer. Um, yeah. Our Ari Aster, the, the script I think for this movie is so smart uh, in the way that it portrays the, the relationship between uh, Christian and Danny and the subtle sort of gaslighting that's going on during the entire movie. And, you know, he, he's great at exploring themes of, of trauma and family set trauma as he did in hereditary. And he does it again here. Um, and I think that um, the, the complete, the moral complexity in this movie comes largely from the script and the fact that um, it, it asks some really challenging questions and refuses easy answers at every single turn. So I really enjoyed the script for this as well. Yeah. I mean, this really felt like the year, I mean, I'm going to have one exception or actually I'll have two exceptions, but overall, you know, this, year really felt like the year of the writer director so many of the best original screenplays feel like they really came from the writer director combo and it's easy to maybe understand why that might be the case <laughs> it really is uh you know when a director you know has themselves to lean on as as a writer it, the the vision for the movie translates a little bit it, it seems like it should translate a little bit more smoothly from page to screen there's probably a little bit uh, less disagreement uh in the in the production room, so to speak. And so, you know, I think this year we really saw the, the fruits of a lot of that labor. I agree that, you know, Ryan Johnson's uh, Knives Out is, is is a standout, not, you know, not only for the political satire, but also just for, you know, the clever ways that it tries to modernize and adapt the whodunit genre in, in a, in, you know, in a, in a modern way, but also in a way that satirizes the whodunit genre a little bit as well. Totally. Um, yeah. And I, again, on my Twitter feed, seeing some people not understand, you know, not really getting it, it feels like, why Knives Out might have been nominated uh, for Best Original Screenplay and saying that, you know, it's not really a very good whodunit when, you know, you know who done it halfway through the movie. Uh, you know, I will, eh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, spoilers, brief spoilers here. If you haven't seen Knives Out, fast forward like 30 seconds. But like the fact that you learned that he kills himself like halfway through the movie and like that's the whodunit. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the point. <laughs> that's the clever part of the script that it's that's you know turning it on its head and doing something different. Um, so I some you know I don't understand some of the complaints about it, but it I loved it. I loved it for me. I've seen it three times. I've already bought it um, <laughs> to own, and I definitely see myself going back to that one uh, again and again because talk about like color palettes and tones of a movie. Just everything about it feels warm and cozy, even though of course not all the characters in that movie are very warm and cozy. Um, but no, really, really love that from Ryan Johnson. I also, you know, really loved Parasite, right? Bong Joon Ho uh, writing, uh, being at least a co-writer here for his own for his own movie. And again, you can see the fruits of the labor on the screen. I don't necessarily need to belabor that point too much, but a, a really, you know, talk about satire and effective satire. You know, none, none better in 2019 than Parasite, and you know, creating a political or socioeconomic satire about uh, you know class warfare essentially you know i joked about in my original letterbox review of parasite that this is the movie that joker wanted so desperately to be uh, to have something to say about class about class conflict uh in in society and parasite did everything that that joker wished it could have done and um i, I really really loved the screenplay from that film oh just quickly two more here book smart is one of the exceptions that i was talking about olivia wilde uh, she did direct, but she did not write. Uh, this was a combination of a bunch of different women, uh, Emily Halpern, S Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silverman, 
uh, co-wrote this movie together. At least they all got screenwriting credits uh, for this movie. And just one of the best comedies that I've probably uh, seen, man, in, in ages. I, I can't really think of a better comedy in the in the past, you know, five six years off the top of my head. And maybe that's because Booksmart is in the wheelhouse of the type of comedies that I really enjoy. But something about the narrative and the direction of the and the journey that that these two characters, Molly and Amy, take over the course of the film. I mean, to learn learn things about themselves and also learn about their relationship and where their relationship sort of lies at this really pivotal moment in their lives just really worked for me. And then a movie, Scott, that I coming in really hot off the press here, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I just saw earlier today. Uh, again, one of the one of the best screenplays of the year for me. And I think really this this movie almost I would I hesitate to say that it lived and died. Uh, by its screenplay, but Celine Shiyama, who both directed and wrote this movie, another writer-director combo here, uh, is someone where the story really here is the meat and potatoes of this movie. The the characters that she creates uh, through her narrative and the emotional uh, journey, the romantic journey that these two characters go on over the course of the film, I mean, that is the entire film, basically. And so really great job. Um, just a, a really lovely movie. And I... I can't yet say definitively where it lies in the in the larger landscape of movies in 2019 and other places, but uh, because it's so raw, but it, it really does deserve credit. It's a it's a wonderful film. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. All right, Scott. I just rattled off a bunch of honorable mentions. I apologize. Let's get to your winner now. Yeah, you mentioned it in that long string of uh, of honorable mentions. It's Parasite. Um, Bong Joon Ho and Han Jin Wan. Um, their screenplay for this amazing stuff. Um, like you said, the socioeconomic satire, there's so many layers to the class critique that, uh, is going on here. I, um, I still haven't grasped all of them despite seeing the movie three times. And, and something I did appreciate more, even maybe the third time is that this is, this movie's funny. It has some good comedy in it. Um, at certain moments, I think the whole repeating gag about, oh, it's so metaphorical. Um, it, it's funny. And and also, you know, may, maybe there's a little bit beneath the surface to just the, the fact the, the tendency of people to talk about the greatness of a movie in in while talking about its symbols and its metaphors like uh, that being a measure of whether a movie is great in cinema and all this stuff. And yes, Parasite absolutely has those. But I think it's also poking fun a little bit at the idea that, oh, a movie has to be so metaphorical and everything in order for uh, it to be considered great. Uh, yeah, this this movie's amazing. Um, it, it, it may not be my, bet, ultimately my best picture, but uh, I have no qualms. I can have no qualms whatsoever about it winning best picture and what, uh, what that means going forward, hopefully, uh, for the Academy. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and then to know that it's metaphorical, it's something that I think about every single time I, I've watched the movie. I think we've both seen it three times now. And one of the things that I think about every time is what what those lines mean, because it's obviously it's obviously very important. And they say it so many times over the course of the film. And I think every time I've watched it, I've thought it, I've thought about it differently. And I think the most recent time what I settled on is that it's really interesting how it ties into the end of the movie. But, you know, you have this whole film, you know, um, is it Kiwu? I think it's Kiwu. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, it, it talks is the one who's saying the line over and over that it's it's so metaphorical. And at the end of the movie, uh, all that metaphor that he apparently was telling the people to to realize is is one that he you know he can't himself even recognize the fact that they tried so hard uh, to infiltrate and in, in the the lives of of these upper uh, upper class people, these wealthy people, and it, it you know backfires on them that you know, even at the end of the movie 
he's still plotting his way uh, to the top of the socioeconomic ladder and not understanding the metaphor behind uh, the events that happened uh, for him and his family already, uh, you know, throughout the majority of the film. And I think that um, it just speaks to the power of, of the of the screenplay and the, and the story behind this entire movie is that you can watch this movie three times and still be getting new things out of it uh, each time, you know, not just on, on a surface level, but a, a deep, meaningful level. Uh, since something new after. So. Totally. Yeah. For me, one that we have not mentioned so far actually takes takes this award for me. Uh, <clears throat> and one that I thought, you know, I, I thought that yeah, there was a long shot chance that, you know, maybe this could win the Oscar, but it, it of course did not. And that's uh, Noah Baumbach for Marriage Story, a movie that, you know, fired a lot of blanks besides Laura Dern, uh, Best Supporting Actress, uh, win at the Oscars, but a movie that I really adored last year. And, and one of the most powerful parts of the movie is Noah Baumbach's screenplay. Of course, it being semi-autobiographical about his divorce from Jennifer Jason Leigh uh, now five or six years ago now, maybe even more, maybe seven or eight years ago. And the story of, you know, of a marriage uh, and a love uh, kind of dissolving and becoming something new, not necessarily dissolving completely because I think it, it evolves into something different by the end. And, and the tenderness and fairness with which I think it, it treats every single uh, perspective, and I, uh, the two main perspectives in the film, I guess, is really the ones that matter most. But you know, both Charlie and Nicole's perspectives. You know, early on in the movie, and the simple trap of this movie might be that it, it takes a side, takes a side in the divorce, and and the fact that Bombach is so capably able to tell and make you feel for both sides of the story is, you know, maybe the most impressive thing in a overall very impressive movie. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I admire this movie a lot. Again, for a, f a couple of reasons, it didn't strike quite a, a, as much of a chord for um, me as it did for you. But uh, I think the screenplay is definitely one of the strongest elements here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, looking forward to at some point going back and doing a rewatch of all of Bombach's other stuff, especially uh, some of the stuff that he did with his uh, partner Greta Gerwig. Yeah, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in there. So I, there's you know a few movies that I like even more than Marriage Story. Yeah, and, and Meritory is my first introduction to, uh, you know, writer-director Noah Baumbach. So going back and seeing things like The Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, Miss Amer is it Miss America? Mistress America. Yeah. Mistress America. And um, while, we're, while We're Young is another one of my favorites. Yeah, and they're all on, I think most of them are on Netflix right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to go check those out uh, very soon because if it, if it is something, anything like Marriage Story or better than Marriage Story, uh, def definitely sign me up for that. Yeah. All right, the other screenplay categories got best adapted screenplay. In my opinion, a little bit of a weaker category uh, this year, especially relative to best original screenplay. But do you have an honorable mention to throw out there? Yeah, something else that I was discussing last night with uh, a, a couple of folks. We were talking about the the songs, obviously, earlier. But then we we were also reflecting on the fact that this is a very weak year for adapted screenplays. Um, the fact that Jojo Rabbit won the Oscar, I think, maybe is, is demonstrative of that. But... Um, I did have two honorable mentions. Hustlers, I think, is a movie that uh, adapted from a uh, New York Times article, I believe. Um, an article, some sort of newspaper article. Might have, might have been the New York or the Atlanta. Magazine article, something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think had a really surprisingly smart and biting screenplay. I mean, that last line, they're one of the best last lines in a movie in a long time um, yep. alone. So I, I really, I, I think that... Um, that the screenplay is what I admired the most about Hustlers because it, you know, obviously made it a much smarter movie than maybe you would have gotten from looking at the trailer or the posters or something like that. Um, and then the Irishman, I mean, Steve Zalian is, is always great. Um, what, what he does with, 
with uh, his screenwriting abilities. Um, and I think, again, this movie touches on a lot of uh, new themes for Martin Scorsese, the portrayal of aging, and particularly some of the some of the uh, writing down the stretch of the movie in that last hour, I think, uh, is really, really strong. And while I don't think this, um, you know, deserved to win the Oscar, I think it definitely deserved to be in there. And of course it was. So Irishman. Yeah, again, I think you're making very good points here with you know Zellian's uh, adaptation or adap sorry, adaptation adaptation of 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 is it I heard I, I heard, heard you yeah, yeah no, the, especially the, the you said the stretch that's the part that you know really cuts and really is the I think the most interesting part of the movie and again a lot of that sits with with the screenplay and the direction the writing goes towards the end of the film. As for Hustlers, I just looked it up. It's it's from an article in the Cut, uh, not the New York Times. Um, so just a random, I guess, I don't even know what the cut is. I assume it's a magazine of some sort or some like online. Yeah. Publishing. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's where the article's from. It's by Jessica Presley, maybe, uh, Jessica Pressler, sorry, Jessica Pressler and adapted by Lorene Scafari. I mean, again, we're talking about writer director combos here, very much a theme of this year. And, and I think, yeah, you're right. The, the last line is so biting. And I think I probably should have included this on my honorable mentions list now that I'm thinking about it some more because i think that there are some really strong moments in that in that script uh and the last line being probably the most among them but the one for me that stuck out was the two popes uh i forget i mean is it mccarthy i forget who had adapted the two popes actually right now off the top of my head, I thought anthony I was mccartan anthony mccartan he adapted yeah. it from his own play or something right yes that's right yeah no that he is also, right he's he wrote bohemian rhapsody last year right okay yeah so the stream <laughs> Yeah, the screenplay by Anthony McCartney and Frank Cottrell Boyce. Um, I think that this is one that I think you did not see. You never ended up seeing it, right, Scott? No, haven't no. seen it. Yet. Yeah, I mean, th this 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 whole movie is a conver is essentially a series of conversations between two people, and so by that very nature, it relies heavily on the script that you created, making those conversations interesting and engaging enough for you to be invested in the characters and you know, what they're talking about, especially because what they're talking about ultimately is theology, which is not usually you know, a, a barn burner in terms of uh, filmmaking, but Anthony McCartan does it well. I mean, I haven't seen the play, I haven't read, read the play, anything like that, but whatever he's able to transfer there, whether it's the original uh, script for the play or what he's able to adapt onto the screen here, it works really well and it really sets up some great material for both Jonathan Price, but especially Anthony Hopkins to really sink their teeth into uh, over the course of you know hour forty five or hour forty five minutes or whatever the runtime of this movie was, that's that's my main honorable mention. So Scott, what is your winner? And I will tease again here that I believe we have the same winner. Yeah, it's Little Women again. Um, I think this is just everything you want from an adapted screenplay. Um, it first of all, it takes a story that has been adapted so many times on screen, and it takes a story that is set you know one hundred and fifty years ago in the Civil War. Um, and it makes the that that story feel new and fresh. It makes it feel like we're touching on new territory that has not been touched on in any of the other adaptations. Um, and that is, I mean, uh, a, an incredible feat by Greta Gerwig. Um, and also, you know, giving the characters, um, giving some of the side characters, uh, some of the other March sisters, and, and even like down to Laurie and Marmy and Aunt March, giving them complete character arcs, giving them, making them feel like fully fleshed out, lived in characters um, is something that we haven't seen maybe to, to the same extent that we see here and in other adaptations of Little Women. Um, and so I, I just can't say enough about how miraculous it is what Greta Gerwig did with this this novel, there's really not a wasted moment or line of dialogue in this whole movie, um, and it's it's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, I mean, our listeners will know that I my passion for Little Women can't hold a candle uh, to to yours. Um, few, few people's can. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly, and that's not saying that I'm not you know very very positive about it. And probably the thing, or you know, one of the things that I'm most positive about is what Greta Gerwig was able to do, uh, transforming you know the classic novel, the Lisa May Alcott novel, uh, in a different way. You know, not just taking it from page to screen. But taking it in a completely new direction, you, you've already talked about it, <laughs> splitting up the timelines and separating them out in the way that that she did, and making that uh, you know cohesive and feel like this was the way that Little Women was supposed to be told. Again, I haven't read the book, but um, it you know, like it, it feels cohesive, and of course, I can imagine a you know a new cut of the movie in chronological order, but it just doesn't feel like it's going to work as well, right? I think it's so important uh, for certain parts of the movie. Um, that that you are introduced to to both to both timelines uh, early on, and then go back and forth from there. And it, I mean, let's be honest, guys. It like, takes some balls to do that uh, to adapt a movie in that way. That's you know not only one that's from, you know from a book that was written in, in in a chronological timeline, but also to your point, adapting it four or five, six, seven other times where it's all been adapted chronologically. Yeah. I assume it has. I, I mean, maybe I'm going yeah, to yeah, a huge yeah. one there. Um, but yeah, like, like it just seems like Greta Gerwig is doing something different with that, and, and not just that, but you know, having listened to you know the uh, the episode of Script Notes that she was on, which is a, a podcast that Craig Mason and John August host, that's uh, really dives into the screenwriting side of of movie making. Uh, listening to that episode and listening to all the additional background research that she did into Louisa May Alcott's life, I think it makes you really. Of course, you can't necessarily get that from the script uh, itself and just watching the movie. Uh, maybe you can if you've seen a, if you've read the book and you've seen a bunch of other um, adaptations of of the movie and maybe you can infer certain things about uh, about the background research that she did. But hearing about the the labor of love that that just making the script was for her, I think added a new dimension of um, affection for the for the screen for the screenwriting in particular of this film. And absolutely, Little Women to me, this should have been a slam dunk. I, I, Jojo Rabbit was good enough. I still. Um, I, I like certain, like parts of that movie. Um, I like parts of that movie quite a bit, but the whole thing cohesively doesn't work uh, anywhere nearly as well as Little Women does for me. 100% agree. Yeah. All right, Scott, moving right along, we are now entering sort of the big six uh, categories. So let's start with the four acting categories. We'll start with supporting actress. Scott, what are your honorable mentions? Yeah, uh, give a shout out here to Margot Robbie, who I think had two great performances last year. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, obviously a smaller role, didn't have a ton of screen time. Uh, but for reasons that, again, I won't rant about, doesn't matter whether she had a lot of screen time. She had the amount of screen time that was necessary and that was uh, she needed to have in this movie. Um, but I still still made a really strong impact and what, uh, you know, captured, I think, exactly what Tarantino wanted her to capture with uh, Sharon Tate. And, you know, that scene in the the movie theater with her watching her own movie is a wonderful scene. Um, also, uh, Bombshell being the other movie that she was in, I think a lot of people would point to the Charlize Theron performance here. I think this might be the high, I think Margot's might be the highlight for me um, as this character who we don't really know as well. And I actually, I don't, I don't think it's actually a real person is compiled from several other real people. Um, but nevertheless, I think a, a really strong emotional performance. Again, there's, there's one standout scene with her and, and, um, and Roger Ailes up in his office that I think uh, is one that uh, she, she could, she could get nominated for that whole, for that scene, it, uh, you know, in and of itself alone, um, her, her uh, body language and everything in that scene is pretty great. So yeah, she's she some great, great. McKinnon as well. 
yeah, she she's somebody who can do no wrong right now. And this these two movies were examples of that. Octavia Spencer in Loose um, <clears throat> as the teacher. You know, as much as this movie is about uh, the different sides to Loose and, and you know what what side the 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 way he's playing different sides throughout the entire movie and you know what 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 side does he ultimately come down on in, in this sort of morality debate good versus evil it's also about the same thing with octavia spencer's character revealing different layers that you may not get from this character who you know you see as the stern teacher at first you see loose complaining about her um and then you know we we learn more about her backstory um and maybe what has led her to become the person uh that she is stuff about her backstory that you may not otherwise um uh, you know no, um, which I think gets at part of the the point of the movie and this the script here by Julius Ona uh, and Octavia Spencer. I think is very magnetic in her supporting role here. And then you know, comedy performances don't get enough love at the awards. Um, and there was a clear standout in terms of comedy performances this year, and that's Billy Lord in uh, Booksmart. Her role as Gigi was just absolutely hilarious. The random, the total randomness of this character. I mean, if there's just one. Um, one adjective to describe Gigi, it's random. She just pops up everywhere. You don't know how she gets from place to place, how she survives certain things that happen. You have no idea what she's going to do next, but you know, it's probably going to be hilarious. And I think Billy Lord captures that manic energy of that character perfectly. It culminates with her playing the piano at graduation. So funny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'll talk about book smart in terms of comedies all day long. And Billy Lord was definitely on my list of people who deserve uh, honorable mentions for their supporting actress performance. Another person for me, Jennifer Lopez, kind of obviously one of the biggest conversations we had this award season around snubs, uh, at least in the mainstream uh, conversations around around Oscar snubs was Jennifer Lopez. And you know, as much as I wouldn't have voted for her as the best supporting actress in this category, she had been nominated. I still think that she probably deserved to be because I mean, so much of this movie Hustlers feels like it's on her shoulders for large portions of the film. I think she very easily could have been in uh, you know, the lead actress position as well. It's just a matter of positioning and, and how the studio wanted to approach it. They, I think mo almost all the conversation was around best supporting actress because you do have Constance Wu in this sort of other, you know, co-lead role, I would call it. But uh, Jennifer Lopez is, you know, the real, feels like the real engine room of this movie. And you can tell it immediately from, you know, from the first time you see her character uh, on the screen, which is, it is it Renata? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not right. That can't be right. Isn't Renata Laura Dern's character in, in uh, Big Little Lies? It is, but I thought that, that was also, or maybe it was something similar to that. I thought that that was her name. Yeah, well, I'm going to fact check myself as I talk about it. But anyway, you know, from the moment that she comes on stage and she walks out, you know, the way, the way that you're, you know, she just immediately grabs uh, your attention, I think it is, is striking. And she holds it whenever she's on screen. And you talked about earlier that last line, uh, in the in the film, um, I mean, it's it's a captivating line, and part of it is the way that she delivers it. It's Ramona, Ramona, that's Ramona, right. not Renata. Sorry, yeah. Laura. Dern. Um, <laughs> another person we'll talk about in a second. Say, don't apologize to her too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I'll, I'll make it up to you in a second. Um, yeah, Ramona is is a character. Again, the movie did kind of drop out of my top ten over the course of the year when so many banger, you know, banger after banger was coming out toward the end of the year. But again, a performance that was definitely noteworthy uh, over the course of the year. Other honorable mentions, just really quickly. I mean, I talked about Billy Lord already. Uh, Florence Pugh uh, for her role in Little Women. Again, another one on, on a second watch. 
that I thought it was great the first time I watched it, but when I watched it the second time, I mean, nothing really uh, in this movie held a candle to, in my opinion, as much as I praise the screenwriting, you know, as, as good as Saoirse Ronan was as well. I just don't think anything compared to what, what Florence Pugh was able to do in the dichotomy of how she played the younger version of Amy and the more mature older version. I just think that, you know, could could the could the role have been written a little bit better? I think that actually was one of the areas which could have been improved a little bit, um, in my opinion, just because it feels like a really stark contrast from the earlier timeline to the new timeline, and you don't really see that transition too much. But you don't need to uh, ultimately because just the way the movie progresses and the way that it lays things out, um, and the performance that you get on either side of that time jump is spectacular. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm going to talk about this one uh, right now, I guess. Yeah, well, no, no, because I do want to throw in one more. And I didn't really know where to to throw this in, whether it be in the best actress category or the best supporting actress category. I threw it into the best supporting actress category. Um, I, I didn't look at other awards shows to see if it had been somewhere else. But I put Adele Heinel in for her performance as uh, Helo- Eloise in Portrait of a Lady on Fire again. Uh, this was a movie that I'm a little bit fresh on, so I, I would hesitate to put it any any higher than an honorable mention until I sat with it a little bit more. But you know, she plays uh, this person that the lead actress, uh, played by um, ne- Noemi Merlant, uh, is 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 essentially tasked with painting and the relationship that they develop. Uh, she's an elusive figure. They both are, to be fair. I think it's really hard to uh, sometimes to dig into the way they're feeling within the first half of the movie. And so much of that goes to the elusiveness with which she plays the character. And then you really feel like you get under her skin in the second half of the movie in a really effective way. And I, you know, I'm not someone that romance movies always affects or I'm always uh, necessarily attracted to to go and see in the theater or at home to be fair. But something about the, the you know, again, the, the screenplay for this earlier, the performance, especially here, I think the, the standout performance for me from this movie would be Adele Hanel. And it's just a, a marvelous performance and a captivating performance. And again, I talked about this with the two popes earlier, a movie that I think on paper isn't necessarily all that interesting, but something about the way that everything comes together on screen really elevates the material, including this performance. Yeah. All right. Have at it. Who is your winner? Pew, pew, pew. It's Florence Pew um, for Little Women. I... You know, I'm gonna get that out of the soundbite for future episodes. <laughs> yeah, do it. Uh, two two performances this year that were equally amazing, um, and this was this was definitely one of them. Um, her work, actually, three performances technically, if you count Fine with My Family, but um, her work is Amy. You know, I talked a minute ago about how this screenplay gives um, new new life to characters, which maybe got short shrift in. Past adaptations, and I think Amy is definitely a prime candidate that I'm talking about there. Um, I I would disagree with you a little bit. I actually think that one of the strengths of the performances is that performances that even though yes, there is a disparity between her younger personality, her older personality. I never felt like this character wasn't cohesive throughout. I felt like uh, I really did believe that despite the differences, the person, the younger Amy, does actually become the person that we see as the older Amy. Um, yeah, I believe. To, to clarify, I believe that, which is why I don't have <laughs> a huge problem with it. But it's certainly not that progression is certainly not shown on screen, and I, I'd have a hard time believing anyone who tried to convince me that it was. Yeah, but um, as far as the younger Amy goes, I think that I, I'm more impressed with what she does as the younger Amy every time I see the movie uh, because I think 
this character can come off as annoying in other adaptations, particularly when you have an older actress playing her, right? Because you have, because this is a 13 year old girl, like this is the, the youngest, youngest of the March sisters. Yes. Um, and uh, you have Florence Pugh, who I think is 22 years old, maybe playing her here. And, you know, she's, she's our age. She's like 24, 25. Okay. Um, I, I thought she was younger, but anyway, the point is she's, mu she's much older than the actual age of the character. And, but, but she's able to not make the character annoying somehow. There's, there's this quirkiness to the character as at a young age that doesn't feel forced, that feels natural, that I think um, somehow keeps the character from, you know, coming off as obnoxious or annoying, even when she's doing stuff like burning the book, right? Which um, for decades and decades and decades has made people hate the character of Amy because she burns this book. Um, even despite this, I think uh, Florence Pugh's performance uh, keeps us keeps us anchored to this character. And again, ha having the flashbacks between the older and new timelines also help. I think that seeing the the person that Amy becomes eventually um, helps us to realize helps us to not hold her past indiscretions uh, against her too much. Uh, and some of the scenes where she goes toe to toe with Timothy Chalamet um, are, are amazing. One is, I mean, probably my favorite scene in the movie that I'll talk about a little bit later, but yeah, it's an amazingly accomplished performance from someone who has been around for a couple of years, but who really only had a breakthrough this past year. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, the possibilities for her career going forward are just absolutely endless after this year. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of actresses with the most potential in Hollywood right now, I don't know if I I don't know if she's number one, but I'd have a hard time picking anyone at higher than her in terms of where to your point where her career could go and where I think it very likely will go. I mean, you talk about breakout you know breakout years um, in terms of just the, the volume and the types of roles that she got. You know, she's getting a superhero movie next year. I shouldn't say next year, this year. And um, you know, I I think is she on for other? She probably has other roles coming out this year as well. I'm not sure. I mean, she's been busy. She's been really been been hustling uh, out there and and getting the you know getting these bigger roles to to get eyes on her to get noticed uh, beyond just kind of the smaller roles that she had in earlier films and well deserved in my opinion I think that that's a great pick uh, for me I am going uh, with with the Oscar pick of Laura Dern uh, I know that you probably won't have too much positive to add to me about this because you disagree but I do think that this is an absolutely amazing performance from Laura Dern talk about other people who had really great years. I think Laura Dern is someone who had a great year. I don't necessarily know if her year overall is as good as Florence Pugh, but I think she has another great turn. Uh, I mean, so so I'm picking her for Marriage Story, but she has a great supporting turn as well uh, for Little Women and Little Women. I think that an, another role which I feel like stood out to me uh, really strongly in the second viewing was Marmee. The fact that, you know, of course you hear her say, you know, I have all this anger. I'm angry all the time and I deal with it in, in my own way and I deal with that uh, in my own way. And I think that the second time I watched it, I could, I feel like I could really feel it and I really could see it in Laura Dern's performance, even though it is a smaller performance. Uh, it just really worked for me. I think that Laura Dern was really perfectly cast in that. And uh, it complements this role extremely well. It complements her role as Nora in Marriage Story extremely well because Nora is probably not angry very much of the time, but is outwardly ex acts angry all the time. So it really feels almost like an inverse uh, role here in Marriage Story. It's a much louder role than she has with Marmy, and she hits all the high notes and all the quieter notes as well. In, in, in sort of her like quieter conversations with Scarlett Johansson's character, uh, for me, it's a wonderful performance, and it's a type of role that really feels like it refined and capitalized on 
a lot of the best parts of Renata Klein from uh, Big Little Lies, which who's Lardern's character there. Um, you know, she, she had a wonderful season two there this past year. Is kind of, I mean, for me, maybe even being the standout uh, performance in that show in season two. And I think that you get a, you, she channels a lot of that Renata Klein energy um, in into marriage or into her performance, which I think is kind of the pinnacle of that character for her. Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is a celebration, so I, uh, I'm not going to say too much about the marriage story performance, but what I will say is that, yeah, Little Women performance is by far the better one to me, and I love what she does in that movie, and um, I think it's something, it's, it's, it's a part of the movie that I've come to appreciate, you know, maybe... Uh, the most of, of some of the you know many disparate parts of Little Women uh, on rewatch is this character of Marmee and you know the the sentiment that you you talk about, but also the way that that affects Joe and the 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 bond that she and Joe have over time as Joe uh, is working and trying harder to be more like Marmee and to be more patient and uh, graceful with her anger, which is obviously something that she has a problem with. Uh, when she's younger. So I, I really like that aspect uh, of the plot in Little Women. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great performance. And as I'm sure I will revisit Little Women at some point over the years, I look forward to seeing if I find anything new uh, in the, in that performance and many of the other performances as well. Yeah. All right, Scott, the other supporting uh, acting category, supporting actor in the honorable mentions here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could have gone with a lot here. Um, but I went with three. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, again, talking about Little Women again. Um, sure. <laughs> another aspect that I've grown to love of this movie, the more I've seen it, is Timothy Chalamet's performance. I think uh, what he does with Laurie, the the playfulness of the character. Uh, again, this is another character who I think isn't like an amazingly likable character, at least for me, um, just uh, as written. But I think that, the, that Chalamet... Um, there's there's a lightness to the way that he plays this character that I think even when he's being sort of lazy and directionless and you know drunkenly st stampeding around the party you know being angry at Amy um, I think that even despite all that there's there's still a boyish charm that we like about this character and I love his arc and the way that he comes to appreciate Amy as more than just you know, something aesthetically beautiful, but as a complete person, again, that, that one scene that I'll talk a little bit about later, I think is where that really comes to a head. Um, and some of, some of the most humorous moments in the movie also come from this character, the way he moves and walks backwards and, you know, jumps for all over couches and stuff like this is, is funny. And um, at the end, you know, he gets some laughs when, when, uh, when uh, Professor Bear shows up and talking about, who are you, sir? Who are you? Like just being so insistent about wanting to know who Professor Bear is. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's great. He's somebody with so much potential like Florence Pugh and he's great here. Um, another one that I wrote down was Bill Camp's performance in Dark Waters. Um, he plays this sort of uh, West Virginia farmer who is almost unintelligible with some of his dialogue, but who really introduces Mark Ruffalo to this world that either he he doesn't really know or understand or that he has grown to not know or understand as he's gotten more uh, immersed in the, you know, big law or world of corporate law in you know, a bit, much bigger city in Cincinnati. Um, and I, I think that the anger and the frustration uh, that Bill Camp brings to this performance, um, he he's a great audience surrogate um, th throughout the movie for our feelings about what DuPont is doing in this movie and the way that it's affecting, you know, normal people like him, people who, um, 
maybe don't have the resources to necessarily uh, challenge what's going on, but who um, know that they're upset and, and need to do something about uh, things before it gets too late. Uh, I think he's he's a great audience surrogate, like I said. And then Song Kang Ho in um, Parasite. There are so many performances from the Parasite cast that you could go with, but he is sort of <coughs> the emotional centerpiece of the movie. Um, as the father of the family, um, I think he brings a lot of humor to his performance, but also a lot of uh, depth and heart, particularly in the the final scenes, um, writing to his son, um, the the sacrifices that he kind of makes, the the anger that he eventually succumbs to after sort of we see it boiling up throughout the movie, right? Like the the limo scene with uh, with the mother where she's got her feet up and she's you know just complaining and making him run all over town to get ready for the party. We see the look on his face, he's just stewing. Um, and then eventually, of course, the it's just all it takes is a little nostril flare to set him off. Uh, but it feels like, it, it feels absolutely like the right moment, um, that the, the moment you would believe that would set this character off finally. Um, and so I really, really admire what Song Kang-ho uh, does here. You know, it's clear that he and Bong Joon-ho have a great working relationship. And I think Bong could probably get a great performance out of him in pretty much anything nowadays. Yeah, I'm not familiar with. I mean, what other was he? He wasn't in Okja, was he? I know that <laughs> he was. Uh, no, um, he was in Memories of Murder. Um, I think he's in Snowpiercer. Um, oh, and uh, they, they've worked together several times. And in yeah. general, he's also worked with like Park Chan Wook and like all the big Korean directors. I think in terms of Korean actors, he might be yeah. like the Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say that. I, I know that he's like a super high profile Korean actor. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I, I agree. Song Kang Ho definitely on my honorable mentions list. It, the thing, and whether or not the Academy thought, thought about it this way or not, or whether they just, you know, completely forgot about the Parasite cast or couldn't name them, which is why they didn't vote for him. I think one of the things is that Parasite is the kind of movie where it's hard to pick out individual performances uh, for a type of for this awards type category. Which honestly, why it makes sense winning a best ensemble cast at the SAG Awards, something like that, because it's truly an ensemble cast performance. There's not really one that st stands out head and shoulders above everyone else. But if you had to pick one that I think on multiple rewatches, the, the one that I think sits with you really deeply and a lot, I think it, it would be Song Kang-ho's performance here. And this character is, you know, the kind of the, the person who I, I think that the most internal turmoil happens in over the course of the film. Because, you know, for the most part, every other character here, you know, this, it really feels like they're, they are on a track that is very straightforward and not that it's one dimensional, but that, there's not anything necessarily like fundamentally complex about what's happening, but that's not the case for Song Kang Ho's role. And I think that he, he really does pull that off uh, so spectacularly. I would also say that, um, you know, some of the other, some of the other major performances here for me, um, Joe Pesci in the Irishman. I think if, if one supporting performance sit out in that, uh, I think that it would be Joe Pesci. I think Al Pacino, for me, if I had to rate the top, you know, the, the, the three main performances in that movie, I'd put Al Pacino last and I'd put Joe Pesci first, uh, is what I'd say. And I just think that what he's able to do with this character of um, uh, Buffalino, I forget the, his, the first name of the character, but Russell. Russell Buffalino is, uh, is, wait, is he a Buffalino actually? I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, that's the character, sure. Russell Buffalino. That's okay, yeah, cool, cool, cool. cool. Okay. <laughs> I do remember that movie. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, he, there I was a he, lot of it, so you should remember. <laughs> yeah, the, there was a lot of it. Um, he does it spectacularly. It's a quiet role. It's not necessarily the role that you'd expect Joe Pesci to play in a Scorsese movie. 
And so in that, for that reason, and also for the performance itself, it stood out and it stuck with me for that way, especially uh, towards the end of the movie and some of the final scenes that he has with Robert De Niro uh, in the nursing home, of course, uh, I think really stand out to me as well. Uh, so much, so much about the last 30 to 45 minutes of that movie stand out to me. Uh, unfortunately, the parts before that less so, but I think that that's a really strong performance. And then the Oscar winner, uh, I'm calling a little bit of an audible if you're going off our, our uh, preset list of what we had being honorable mentions and awards. I've switched Brad Pitt from my winner to an honorable mention and switched one of my honorable mentions into the win category earlier today. But I am going with Brad Pitt for an honorable mention because it's a spectacular performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, so many parts about that movie are awesome. It speaks to the strength of the year, the fact that that movie uh, <laughs> only barely inside my top 10 and Brad Pitt's you know one of the best parts of that film. Yeah, no, I usually could have included this one as well. I just, again, had to limit myself. Of course, uh, excess is, is, is both a problem and a virtue, but Scott, if we set aside excess and talk about, you know, the winner of this category, who would it be for you? Yeah, I'm going with a performance that didn't get a lot of awards left. It did get a SAG nomination, uh, but for whatever reason, wasn't really in the conversation for much else. I think maybe the release of this movie heard it, the release date of this movie um, being a little after awards voting, nomination voting went on. But that's Jamie Foxx's performance in Just Mercy. Um, I think you talk about um, <coughs> Pesci being a sort of anti-Pesci restrained performance in Irishman. And I totally agree that that's what I love about that performance too. I think this equally is true here with Jamie Foxx and what he does as Walter, John D. McMillan in Just Mercy. I think we expect a certain type of performance from Jamie Foxx. Like he's, a, he's, a, he's a legitimate movie star. He has movie star charisma. He has... He anchors big movies like Ray and like Django Unchained. Like he is, you know, uh, he he has that movie star charisma that he can really tap into pretty effortlessly when he needs to. I don't think he does that here. And that's what makes the performance even better because I don't think the character calls for that. I think it is uh, a quieter, uh, more restrained character. Um, and I think it's very believable for this man who has, you know, toiled away on death row for something that he didn't do. Um, but we never see sort of anger getting the best of him. We, we see the people around him getting angry. Um, we see maybe uh, some impatience building up in him, but um, he's almost just been uh, deadened to all emotion by the system that he finds himself a part of on death row. Um, and I, th I found that to be a very believable and affecting portrayal, more so than a really showy, again, movie star performance would have been in this role. Um, and again, probably feels very authentic to what the real Walter McMillan was like uh, that, that Brian Stevenson knew. Uh, so I, I don't think this performance got enough love. I, I think what Jamie Foxx does here is the best part of Just Mercy for me. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it is the best part of Just Mercy. I can't remember if we talked at all on air about this, but when, you know, one of the, one of the things that was the, you know, was the shortcoming of Just Mercy was the fact, the fact that the, the movie didn't really follow through on its central premise, didn't really explore Brian Stevenson. As much as we maybe would have liked, as someone, two people who are more familiar with Brian Stevenson at least would have would have liked. And so, uh, I, you know, I walked into the movie theater hoping that I'd get a lot from Michael B. Jordan, and instead we had a lot from Jamie Foxx, which is, which is not necessarily uh, what you what you would have expected. The, the the description of the performance that you just gave, the, the closest thing that it can remind me of is his you know other Oscar nominated performance uh, from the same year that Ray was, and that's Collateral, where. You know, yeah. he's not the anchor of that movie. It's hard to say whether Tom Cruise is necessarily the anchor of that movie either, um, but they have a dynamic in that film that is different than the dynamic that you get between him and Michael B. Jordan. 
in Just Mercy, but I feel like the the it calls for a similar type of or flavor of performance. And Jamie Foxx is very good at that type of performance. That's why he was nominated for an Oscar for Collateral, um, and why arguably he should have been nominated for a performance here as well. It's a, it's a really good a good shout. I think you know again this was just a, a performance that I for, that I forgot about. I think um, afterwards because so much of my mind went to the Brian Stevenson role, but that's uh, not necessarily uh, just. And some Collateral shouting them out here. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, my winning performance here was one that I, I mentioned. I had it in honorable mentions, and then I shifted it up into the winner uh, for this, and that's Shia LaBeouf, someone who has really you know moved heaven and earth, I think, to change the trajectory of his career over the past few years. And I think that you know the pinnacle of that so far has to be you know his role in Honey Boy, uh, the Alma Harrell directed. And Shia LaBeouf written semi-autobiographical uh, story about you know this young actor in Hollywood. It's set in two timelines, uh, Shia LaBeouf being kind of the central character, and then Shia LaBeouf playing his father, um, who is only a, a character in the, in the younger timeline. But you know Noah Jupe plays the younger version of Shia LaBeouf. Lucas Hedges plays the older version, and Shia LaBeouf plays the dad. And it's just an incredible performance. I loved this movie. Um, I thought that, I, I think ultimately it just misses out on my top 10 uh, because of movies that I have seen since we did our top 10 of 2019 uh, show back on January 1st, because I have seen a couple more movies um, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, like Honeyland, which is a documentary I didn't get to talk about on the podcast. Uh, both movies that I think were just edged out Honey Boy on my list, but man, um, like I mentioned, ever since he sort of changed directions with the types of movies that he was doing since he kind of exited the Transformers franchise, you know, of course, going to rehab, which is one of the things this movie is about, you know, going to rehab and you know, fixing certain parts of himself that he felt um, were, were broken or missing or not right um, and trying to wed those two things with uh, his career as an actor and then getting to write about that and then getting to play his father and the way that he plays you know, that can't be described as any other way, but verbally abusive, if not borderline physically abusive relationship that, you know, he has, this father has with the son. To me, it was breathtaking. It was a breathtaking performance this year. And uh, Scott, I'd highly recommend that you uh, see it uh, when you can. I definitely need to and want to, and I'm sure I'm going to love Shia's performance. I did love his work in Peanut Butter Falcon. It was one I thought about throwing in for my honorable mentions. Um, So I'm really excited by what he's doing nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you'll love to hear about this is that it's like 89 minutes long. So it's a super... I do love to hear that. <laughs> you do love to hear that. All right, Scott, moving on to the lead acting categories here. Lead actress. Who are your honorable mentions? Florence Pugh again is in there. And honestly, if if you twist my arm, I might pick, would have picked her as the winner again. But I did want to spread the love just because, you know, there, there were so many great performances uh, as great as she was in in both uh, Little Women and Midsummer, it doesn't feel right to not shout somebody out here. But yeah, Midsummer might even be the most more impressive of the two performances. I think the emotional range that she shows here from <clears throat> uh, the beginning to the end of this movie um, it is pretty amazing. She gets put through the absolute ringer um, and uh, you know wears it well throughout the entire movie. Uh, I think uh, she's a very sympathetic character until maybe she's not at the end of the movie. And uh, that's, there's a lot of interesting questions there, but um, yeah, Saoirse Ronan, her co-star in <clears throat> little women is another one that I wanted to shout out. Love her Joe March um, 
uh, portrayal. I think it's it is different in some ways from other Joe Marches we've seen in the past. I go back and forth on still I, I, as much as I think this is the superior adaptation about whether this performance or Winona Ryder's, which one I like more, just because I think Winona Ryder is so, is so iconic as Joe March too in that '94 version. But certainly can't say a bad word about anything. Saoirse Ronan does here or really in any other movie. Um, and then Scarlett Johansson, who is the highlight of uh, Marriage Story for me, performance-wise. Um, I think she has some amazing scenes in this movie. We know we know about the fight scene, but then that scene with uh, with the therapist um, is, is also amazing. Or I guess it's with Laura Dern's character, isn't it? Um, either way, um, yeah. amazing scene where, amazing sort of unbroken monologue that she goes on for three or four minutes that maybe feels a little stagey, but uh, I think works really well to show the strength of her performance here. Yeah, a, a little stagey for sure. Um, but again, <coughs> another episode, I'm just plugging script notes today. I, I, I don't know if you ended up listening to this episode, but I know I also sent it to you, but the the episode with Noah Baumbach talking about marriage story, talking about how that scene is like 12 pages of unbroken dialogue in the script, yeah. um, which is- I listened to some of the Little Women one, but not the marriage story one yet. Yeah, I really love that podcast. I don't listen to every episode because some of the stuff is a little bit more and a little bit too industry, you know, a little bit too um, uh, inside baseball yeah. for, for me to be attracted to it. But some of the ones that I read the descriptions and find the ones that are interesting to me and love these converse, these two conversations, these two episodes in particular, would strongly recommend anyone who's interested in hearing a little bit more about the screenplay side of these movies to go and listen to that. that again, that's script notes uh, with John August and Craig Mason. Craig Mason, the screenwriter <laughs> for Chernobyl, so an Emmy Emmy winning screenwriter. Uh, anyway. He also wrote the Hangover series movies, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's amazing that one writer can do both those things. I think that's awesome. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, no, those those are all great uh, lead performances, honorable mentions. I also have Florence Pugh. I agree that it's the superior uh, performance here, and you know, some of those scenes in Midsommar. We'll talk about a few of them later, I'm sure. But wow, some of those scenes are just absolutely phenomenal, and she's she's at the core of them. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be the same without the performance that she gives. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o for us, someone who kind of uh, fell by the wayside in award season. And, you know, you and I, we, we did review us on the podcast and you and I did have our qualms with the film, Thought it, it, at least relative to get out was not a, not, not as good, not as tight of a movie, obviously trying to do very different things than what get out was trying to do. But Lupita Nyong'o's performance, I think is, is one that the release date of us heard it. And I know that Daniel Kaluuya's performance carried through all the way to the end of award season for Get Out and got a nomination, and he did get a nomination. But Lupita Nyong'o didn't quite get the same love, and that's probably just because of the, you know, swath of strong performances this year. That being said, uh, Cynthia Erivo got a, a nomination uh, that I think Lupita Nyong'o again. I haven't seen Harry, so I don't know the strength of the performance, but Lupita Nyong'o I think very easily could have gotten into that slot if Us had been released in October or November when Harry was. Um, Really strong performance, and I talked I talked a little bit about it earlier, but the fact that you know a lot of the, a lot of the climactic scenes in this movie are Lupita Nyong'o and Lupita Nyong'o uh, facing off against each other, which I just think takes a really special kind of performance. I think to be able to envision that in your head and play that the right way, and clearly the relationship that she had with Jordan Peele in the making of this movie is is uh, you know next next level in terms of filmmaking and, and what they were able to how they were able to communicate, how they were able to to capture those moments on screen ultimately uh, and cut it together, things like that. It was all just a really strong performance. Uh, trying to think of any other uh, honorable mentions. Yeah, I think I'll, uh, Jesse Buckley for Wild Rose, I think is one that you know came up earlier when we were talking about the best original song, but the journey that she goes on, the emotional journey that she goes on is something really spectacular. 
and then, of course, the movie that I saw earlier today, bringing it up for a third time now, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what I viewed as kind of the lead role here by Noemi Merlon. I don't know how to pronounce the name, so I apologize. But uh, that is a standout performance. Again, not I wouldn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily top Adele Hinell's performance for me, but the weight of this movie just really sits on the shoulders of those two women. Um, and so to me, both both deserve credit and just very emotional, very emotional performances at times and, and in ways that surprise me a little bit. And I'm interested to see how it affects me the more that I think about it. I don't think I'll see it again in theaters, but uh, maybe a rewatch if it gets to streaming, which I'm sure it will. It's it's definitely the type of movie that's going to hit one of the streaming services. Um, and hopefully there it will find a wider audience than it will in theaters. Yeah. All right, Scott, who is your winner? I have a feeling that I mentioned her already. Yeah, you did. It's uh, Jesse Buckley for Wild Rose. Um, you know, I don't feel so bad about not giving it to Florence Pugh here when you have, I think, an equally strong performance um, to, to go with here and, and shouting out what Jesse Buckley did in a movie that even fewer people know about than Midsummer, I think, with Wild Rose. Um, and, Definitely. Uh, yeah, but but like you said, the the emotional journey is spectacular. I think there's there's something raw and unpolished about this performance that I think really fits the character well. I mean, so so many of the other um, performances we talked about are just polished to a T, um, and and they should be. But uh, I think that necessarily this character is you know. Hard scrabble character in the beginning. She's rough around the edges. She's just gotten out of prison. Um, we're not really meant to fully buy in on this character, but you see that twinkle in her eye every time music comes up, every time she gets to sing, every time she's at the Grand Old Opry Club there in in, uh, in Glasgow. Um, and you you have to feel for her then because, I mean, it's anyone who has had a dream will recognize the twinkle that she has in her eye again when she's singing or, or thinking about music. Um, and I think that's what keeps you anchored to this character and what makes it so satisfying when she does undergo the emotional uh, sort of upheaval that she needs to, to undergo and goes to Nashville. Her acting is amazing in the scene at the Ryman Auditorium where she sings uh, when I reach the place I'm going. And then ultimately realizes what her priorities in life are in the end. Um, I think her her acting is great throughout it, and uh, an underrated aspect maybe is uh, her her facial acting as she's singing the songs. I think um, help, helps accent the lyrics, um, which again have a lot of relevance to what's going on in the movie. So um, yeah, she, such a great performance and actress who. Um, it isn't quite as, as young as some of the other ones we've mentioned, but I hope uh, with with the strength of this performance will be springboarded into a long and uh, successful career. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, honestly, you know, the kind of performance defining moments for me are the ones that you were talking about here, talking about the the journey that she, the end of the journey, you know, when she realizes what's important to her and, you know, in Nashville, like she finally goes to Nashville and she realizes that, you know, she doesn't like her dream that she had at, at one point in, you know, in, in the past, you know, that doesn't have to be, it doesn't always have to be that dream. It can be a new evolution of that and learning how to balance her priorities in life. I, that was the part that really sold me on this performance and sold me on this movie, to be honest. And I just think that she perfectly played it. And I would echo everything you said about the uh, vocal, the vocal aspects and the facial aspects and during the songs. Uh, yeah, she is a little bit older than, than 24, 25, et cetera, but she's only 30. So there's lots, lots more still to come. I think, you know, she was also in Judy last year. I'm trying to remember, like, I think she's, what is she doing? 
what is she doing this year? She's definitely doing the something. Maggie John Hall movie. Yeah, she's in that, but I'm thinking she's also in Iron Bark, which is that spy uh, film with her and uh, is it Benedict Cumberbatch? Maybe that's in it. It played, I yeah. think, at uh, Cannes. Yeah, or at Sundance rather. Yeah, yeah, Sundance. Yeah, no, I think that was the one that came to mind. But also, uh, actually, the one that I was thinking of is I'm. She's in. I'm thinking of ending things. Right, uh, which is a movie. I don't know if it's technically coming out this year. I think it's supposed to, but it's her and Jesse Plemons and Tony Collette. And I believe it's a Netflix film, but um, she's in that, and I think that that could be a potentially uh, really strong role for her. Depending, on, I assume she's going to be kind of the the co lead or the main supporting actress uh, in the in that movie. So I'm I'm looking forward to that one. And I, Iron Bark got lukewarm reviews. I don't I don't know if. Uh, that's necessarily one to to really look out for to to be that next step in her career, but maybe I'm thinking of anything can be that for. Her. Yeah, yeah. For me, you mentioned it as well. You know, you you mentioned this one. I mentioned Scarlett Johansson. I mean, Marriage Story. I, I really can't say enough about certain aspects of this movie. I, I really love this film. And man, you you said it's the standout performance for you. The film. I don't know. I mean, so many good parts of this movie. Adam Driver. Uh, it is between for me, her, and Adam Driver, and. Uh, they're both stand out in their own way, but you know this performance as Nicole, um, and her, it's almost because because of it's in tandem with so many other things with, with the screenplay with Adam Driver with Laura Dern, all these performances come together and they kind of just bring they just all you know rising tide lifts all boats uh, so to speak here and I think Scarlett Johansson benefited uh, a strong performance benefited a lot from that as well because she has so much talent around her uh, both on the page and. Uh, you know, in front of the camera and behind the camera too, for that matter. Uh, and, you know, she takes full advantage of it. It's probably, in my opinion, the best performance of her career, topping um, her her voice role in her uh, for me. And and really just, I can't say enough great things uh, about this, about this role. And um, you just really feel for this person who, you know, maybe in the first couple scenes of the film, you may not necessarily feel like it's, you're meant to sympathize or empathize with her too much. But then there's these moments like, you know, in New York after they get home from the final performance at the play or whatever, and it follows her into the bedroom and you can see like just a single tear rolling down her cheek at the interaction that she just had with her husband, Charlie. Um, and then this sort of, you know, empowerment journey she goes on uh, in LA. I just can't imagine anyone else playing this role than Scarlett Johansson. It's a great performance. All right. Best actor, Scott, who you got for the honorable mentions? Yeah, Leo DiCaprio. I've talked before about how I think this might be my favorite performance of his career as uh, as Rick Dalton in, uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love the comic energy and the vulnerability that he brings to this role. Uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. in Loose. Um, I think that the ambiguity of this performance, he keeps you guessing throughout the entire movie. And I think the entire movie hinges on the fact that he's keeping you guessing in order to keep the tension going. And he, he nails it at every stage. Uh, someone who's going to be a star in the years to come, I think. Um, and finally, George Mackay for 1917. I think a performance not getting enough love because it's not necessarily one you think of as an actor's movie. Um, but he has to wear a lot, a lot, a lot on his face and, and, and his body language in this movie, uh, because it's not a dialogue heavy movie, particularly after, you know, sort of the halfway point in the movie. Um, but he really, uh, he really conveys the journey that we as the audience are going on with him, uh, very well through, through, uh, you know, the, these nonverbal aspects of acting. Um, and I think we, we're rooting for his character the whole time, which is, again, essential to the movie. So those are some ones that stood out for me. 
Yeah, I mean, you, all all of those there I, I had on my honorable mentions list as well, be it, um, you know, Leo, Kelvin Harrison Jr., um, and I absolutely would have thrown on George Mackay as well, but I was uh, trying to add some new ones into the mix here, and so I couldn't help but throw in Robert Downey Jr., someone who nine months ago we were talking about, I mean, we know there's no way he's going to get a Best Acting nomination, but someone who not just for the role that he plays in game, but for what he's been able to do over the last 11 years in the MCU is worthy of a nomination. And again, leaving that aside, I think his, his role and performance in Endgame is, alone is worthy of a nomination in what may be a weaker year. This year, I don't know if he was the one of the, one of the top five for me, but in a weaker year, uh, I, don't, I don't think he got enough attention that it deserved, even if ultimately I'm, I'm okay with him not getting a nomination. Uh, this past year, but I definitely throw his performance in there. I'd throw a mention for Eddie Murphy as well. I know you didn't see Dolomite as my name, Scott, but Eddie Murphy really anchors this movie. I know there there was a little bit of buzz for him as well as his uh, co-star in the movie, Wesley Snipes. But I thought that um, Wesley Snipes was as much as Dolomite, of course, is is a comedic character. It felt like he like Wesley Snipes was the was the comedic foil to Eddie Murphy's Dolomite, and so. For me, Eddie Murphy's character is the one that stood out the most in the film and, and definitely one of the best performances uh, of Eddie Murphy's career, definitely the last 10, 20 years, um, ever since something like coming to, I never saw coming to America, but uh, I, don't, I assume that was a really strong role uh, for him as well. I think Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, I mean, probably for me, the biggest, the second biggest uh, acting snub uh, for me of the year, only behind my winner in this category, uh, is his performance. And I mean, Uncut Gems, what a movie. I mean, absolutely, what a movie. Um, and he is the the lifeblood of it, the manic energy that the Safdie brothers bring to this film. No no one better for manic energy, I think, at least in the way the Safdies intended, than Adam Sandler. And every aspect of his acting potential feels like it's just totally focused and utilized in the right way in that role. And I just can't say enough positive things, <clears throat> excuse me, about that. Adam Driver as well. I mean, Marriage Story, I talked about already. I don't want to harp on too long about it. Um, Adam Driver is absolutely uh, worthy of a nomination. He would have been, of the of the acting nominees, he would have been my vote for best actor, probably just, just edging out Leo as much of a Leo shill as I am. Um, I think I think I would have given it to to Adam, not just for his role in Marriage Story, but just how incredible of of a year uh, that he's had. I think that would probably in a, break the tie between him and Leo in the, in the acting category for me, Scott. But with that, who is your winner? Yeah, this this is how he wins. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Adam Sandler is the best actor from 2019. Um, for his performance in Uncut Gems, yeah, I don't know if it's just no, not not murder mystery. I'm shocked. Yeah, I don't know if it's just the fact that uh, I'm so shocked that a great performance actually came out of him that I maybe overrating this performance, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I think he's amazing in Uncut Gems. Um, the Safties know how to control his manic energy, um, but I think that whereas that manic energy doesn't work in a lot of movies. Um, it's absolutely essential to the character of Howard Ratner um, because this guy's insane. Um, he's just making, you know, he's trying for score after score. He's digging a deeper and deeper hole for himself, just believing that the, the next score, the next bet is going to be the one that's going to get him out of the hole. Um, and I think Sandler purpose uh, perfectly portrays 
the simultaneous like desperation of this character, but also like the thrill and excitement that he still gets out of it. Um, even though, uh, even though he's at his backs against the wall, there's goons hunting him down. Um, he, he still, he can't, he can't quit it because, because he gets such a, such a thrill out of it. Um, and I think he plays off the other actors in the cast really well, whether it's Kevin Garnett, um, Keith Stanfield, Julia Fox. Um, I think he has great chemistry with all of them. Uh, and yeah, you, you talk about like iconic in terms of, you can't imagine anyone else playing this role. Uncut Gems would not be the movie that it is without Adam Sandler playing this role. And uh, so many of his lines that he has in this movie, um, you know, already stick in your mind. It just feels like a performance that we're going to remember for years and years to come. Yeah, I 100,000% agree. I, I even had Adam Sandler as, at the top of my list until, until um, you know, I came to terms with the fact that, you know what, now this this performance was was the one of the year, as much as I wish I could also put Adam Sandler uh, down as the winner. And that's Paul Walter Hauser's performance in Richard Jewell. I mean, he, he being the titular character, Richard Jewell, of course. And, man, talk about other people who you can't imagine anyone else playing that role. I mean, Paul Walter Hauser probably born to play the role of Richard Jewell. I think he's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, not only is this character, I think, really probably the best part of the movie, which is a good thing since the movie's called Richard Jewell, uh, but the but the performance here and, and the arc that you know Richard goes through over the course of the film, whether it's entirely you know true to life or not, I'm not concerned, particularly concerned with that in this uh, in this environment or in this scenario here. But the performance he gives is is breathtaking. It absolutely is. It's um, unerringly accurate, as several of his performances in the past have been. I mean, those post-credit scenes for I, Tanya, man, talking about his performance there, uh, how he perfectly he was able to capture uh, the the vocal tics and the um, particular actions of the person he portrayed, who has name I'm forgetting already. Sean um, something, yeah. Yeah, sounds right. But basically, uh, is he the guy that they, they actually have um, – He's like the co-conspirator or whatever. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a great performance. His performance in Black Klansman too. But everything just feels like it led up to this performance. And um, unfortunately, I'm just not sure that this was like the platform for him to get bigger roles that I had hoped it would be and that I feel like it should be. It just didn't feel like Richard Jewell made enough waves uh, critically you know, in the industry. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But uh, Paul Walter Hauser gave probably for me one of the best performances of the last few years. It's a great performance, one I could have easily included uh, on there. I think uh, it makes Richard Jewell into a stronger movie than it might otherwise be. All right, Scott, moving right along. Best Director. A lot of strong nominees in this uh, category. It was a great year for directors. Um, I could have made an honorable mention list. That was probably 10 names long. But Bong Joon-ho, obviously the Oscar winner um, for so many reasons, what he did with Parasite. Sam Mendes, the impressive feat of pulling off uh, the the stunt that was 1917 that actually turned into being a really amazing movie, not just a stunt. Um, the Safdie brothers for Uncut Gems, like we said, I think uh, their stamp is all over this movie in the way that they are able to control and harness Adam Sandler's um, energy in this movie is, is something that maybe no directors have been able to do really that successfully before. And then the Russo brothers, who I really do wish had gotten more love, I think, for the totality of what they did with the uh, several MCU films that they directed, I think for me uh, were, were some of the most important MCU movies to me, uh, of course, culminating with Avengers Endgame this past year, um, bringing that 
you know, tw 22 movie franchise that has meant so much to so many people to a close that satisfied almost everyone. Um, I can't say enough about how impressive that feat is and their direction of the action sequences and large scale battle sequences is masterful. Um, especially after watching The Rise of Skywalker, I think I have an even greater appreciation for um, how successful the Russo brothers were and, and what a difficult feat it was, what they were able to accomplish in Endgame and across the four movies that they directed with these huge team up movies really for all four of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, mainly, I'm mainly gonna be echoing here uh, people that you said, Bong Joon-ho, absolutely, absolutely. One of the best directing uh, performances of the year, if that's the right way to put it. Uh, best directed movies of the year, Parasite, for sure. The Safties, again, I, I could I could go all day talking about how much I love Uncut Gems. Um, you know, seeing that movie the first time, and then the fact that I shocked myself by wanting to see it again, and you know, the fact that I'd be happy to see it again, too. Uh, it, it's pretty incredible what the Safties were able to accomplish with channeling not only Adam Sandler's manic energy, but kind of just personifying on screen uh, what it means to induce anxiety into your crowd. Uh, it's just absolutely incredible what they're able to do. And, and I look forward to um, visiting for the first time some of their other movies uh, as well to see what they're capable of. And then also, of course, what they do in the future, hopefully, knock on wood, with Adam Sandler uh, to get him away from whatever disasters he's going to make for netflix over the next few years um i think that you know i, I love the safties you know if, if the safties are the people who are known for creating and channeling this manic energy this anxiety inducing filmmaking the russos are the masters of large action sequences like like you've mentioned here i mean maybe before that maybe we thought maybe peter jackson might have been the person for that but i think the russos put peter jackson to shame in terms of the large battle scenes and and being able to juggle 15, 20 different characters that all the, you know that you care about and giving you the payoffs you want, or maybe even sometimes the payoffs you didn't know you wanted. And again, masterful work. I think the only person that I'd add from your honorable mentions list is Olivia Wilde. I think it's a, a fantastic directorial debut uh, and a different kind of movie uh, than you often hear of talked about in the best director category. But I think it's just so clear after you know the five times that I watched Booksmart last year that I'm not sure if anybody else could have made that movie. Just the environment that she created on the set um, uh, with the cast, with the crew, it just made everything, I think it just is so clear on screen, the chemistry and the comfort that everyone has with each other. And I think that Olivia Wilde has to be at the center of that, uh, that environment on set. So I'm looking forward to what she does in the future as well. For sure, she's got a lot to live up to with her, her next efforts, but as we saw with my choice for best director, uh, a amazing first movie doesn't mean you also can't make an even more amazing second movie yeah no olivia wilde i think actually just these past couple of weeks has confirmed what she's going to be doing next is she's going to be directing an adaptation of is it, uh the the olympic gymnast kelly is it uh, i can't remember her name something scrubs carrie, uh, carrie shrug carrie shrug yeah she's uh, doing an adaptation of interesting uh her time in in the olympics i think is i don't know the details of it but yeah she she has the famous uh famous vault where she uh, with with a busted ankle landed the vault in order to give the usa the gold medal but yeah that should be an in interesting uh interesting thing but yeah that's right yeah that yeah she's uh, she's directing that uh, adaptation cool well yeah my pick is greta gerwig obviously for best director um not won't come as a surprise to anyone. I don't have much to say that I haven't already said, but um, this movie is just impeccably constructed. The timeline decision absolutely works. The Academy, Academy members, you are complete buffoons and idiots for thinking that the time structure was too hard to follow. Um, that that I, I particularly watched for it the fourth time I saw this movie. 
because that whole story had come out and was like, is there any way that anyone can get confused? No, you're a moron. I'm sorry. That's, there's just no way around it. You're a moron if you, if you get confused by the time structure of this movie. There are so many context clues, so many context clues. Um, but anyway, um, I digress. I, I think it's impeccably constructed. Again, not a wasted scene, not a wasted performance, not a wasted line of dialogue. Um, it's, so, it, it's such a clear picture of an artist who knew exactly what she wanted to do with this adaptation um, and did it. Um, and, and it's clear that she the story means a lot to her, but that also doesn't mean that she can't revise it in ways that um, maybe are even an even greater tribute than to Louisa May Alcott than any other adaptation uh, was. So, yeah, I mean, she's uh, as gifted a director as we have working right now, and uh, lunacy that she didn't get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great directing outing. It's one of those things where this was so clearly, like, I I wonder if, like, this is the movie she was born to make. I wonder if she's going to be able to replicate this directing performance because, I mean, again, going back to listening to the conversation she had with John August on script notes, it's just like, this is, like, this is the this is the movie she wanted to make uh, from, from, like, the time she, you know, became a director, basically. And it shows. Uh, and it, it absolutely it shows. And so... I just hope, you know, God willing, she's able to find that passion and channel that into movies in the future um, and, because it's, it's powerful. And it's the same thing with the Safties and Uncut Gems, right? They were trying to make Uncut Gems for 10 years. Like they made some other movies before it, but this was the movie that they were trying to make for the longest amount of time. And again, I think it shows in the finished product. It's clear that this idea has been in their head for, heads for a long time. Absolutely. 100% agree. I mean, yeah, I was listening to the H24 podcast where the Safties were talking to Paul Thomas Anderson and they were talking about how every movie before this was, you know, if we screw this up, we won't be able to make the movie we want to make. And then with Uncut Gems, it's if we screw this up, it doesn't matter because we made the movie we wanted to make. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, absolutely. Of course, that they're, you know, a little tongue in cheek there because they want to keep making movies. But sure. Um, you know, to your point, it is, the, it is their passion project. And, uh, I'd imagine, I don't know this to be true, but I imagine Bong Joon-ho probably feels similarly about Parasite. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and the my winner is, you can certainly say it was his passion project, and that's Sam Mendes. I mean, this is this is a movie based on a, like a story, a kind of fable-like story uh, uh, told by his grandfather to him about World War One, <laughs> 1917, absolutely remarkable. Um, start to finish, top to bottom, however you want to describe it. Uh, everything Sam Mendes brought together to make this film uh, in his role as director. I like you. I feel like I just don't really have very much to say because it, it speaks for itself. Yeah. Yeah. Spectacular, spectacular performance and a, another common theme among the best movies of the year about being passion projects, about being writer directors. Because Sam Mendes, even though we didn't bring him up in the screenwriting category, you know, did co-write, co-write this film. Um, and again, I think all these things from page to screen, they really tra- they just translated so well this year with the best movies. Yeah. Speaking of the best movies, Scott, best picture, honorable mentions. Yeah, I think last year it was a little different because maybe our favorite movies and best movies didn't quite like completely cross over. Like maybe there were some movies that we felt um, were deserved to be in the best picture category that maybe weren't like all the way at the top on our favorites list um, and maybe vice versa as well. Um, yeah, because we both said but, to, to clarify for our listeners who maybe didn't don't remember a year ago, we both said Roma was the best picture of of twenty eighteen. Despite having that number at number four on both of our personal lists, right? But anyway, but the point is, this year uh, it wasn't 
wasn't it didn't go that way for me. I think the movies that I considered to be the best were also the movies that I considered to be my favorites. And uh, in terms of honorable mentions, that includes Midsummer, uh, a, amazing film by Ari Aster that just didn't get any love because it's a genre film on paper, I guess. Uh, it's seventy-two on Metacritic, which is just crazy. I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, you know how I feel about it. I'm just yeah. saying like critics felt differently about it then. Yeah, but I think the the Metacritic score for some of the movies that got nominated for Best Picture is probably around that too. But anyway, um, 1917, uh, obviously an incredible achievement. One of the best war movies that I've seen in a long, long time. Um, And Parasite, the movie that won Best Picture. Um, Again, even though I personally would have gone with a different choice, I almost feel like Parasite winning was the best possible scenario. Again, just because of what it means with first foreign language film to win an Oscar with. Uh, what this movie meant to so many people, the fact that you don't really see it that many people um, except for some total dude bros like complaining about this movie winning Best Picture. Um, I, I think the Oscars won a lot of goodwill by doing this, and I hope that it's not a sh- uh, you know an outlier and that um, we will continue to see challenging uh, films rewarded as Best Picture no matter what language they're in. Yeah. Have you honestly seen people reacting negatively to Parasite winning Best Picture? Yeah, there's some like concern, like far right wing like commentators. Oh, like, oh I, I didn't see the tweets that Ben Shapiro uh, put out. Okay, I, I didn't even see. I mean, I imagine he's probably bad about it. But I think just there's just some crazy people saying that like, oh, the Oscars, this movie is uh, is like they're just it's a woke choice, right? They're just trying to be woke by choosing the the foreign movie and everything. But then I, I did see one person who was who had come out with a bunch of tweets saying this, and then actually went and saw Parasite and was like. Okay, the movie's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'd say just, I mean, Ben Shapiro's tweets are laugh out loud funny about Parasite. Um, mm-hmm. You should, Lon, I only saw them because Lon Harris uh, replied to, to them, like just trying to, like roasting him about it. Um, this yes, the actual- Man syndrome, very much so. Yeah, no, it, it's it's worth a laugh. Um, but also, maybe knowing you, maybe don't check it out, it'll probably just upset you. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, no, uh, Parasite, for me, I'll talk about it in a second. I, I don't mean to hide the eight ball. I've been saying all year that you know, best best pictures, Parasite, my favorite movie of 2019 is is 1970. But Parasite's my number two. I mean, absolutely, I'm on my top ten list uh, for a reason. But anyway, to talk about the honorable mentions more briefly here, uh, 1970. I think we're on the same page there. Uh, Uncut Gems, again, a movie that I think like it's just it's just so well made. It's just such a well made movie. Um, Marriage Story as well. And then I just thought I'd shout out Avengers Endgame just because of uh, n- nothing in in a world, I guess, where it feels like at this point comic movies have tread a lot of ground. I mean, we're getting like five plus comic book movies a year at this point, generally speaking. It felt like Avengers Endgame is the pinnacle of a genre. And I just don't think that um, I again, we'll see how this develops over time. But in terms of comic book movies, you know, I've had I've said on this idea like this thought for like 10 months now, just like. I don't think there will ever be another movie like Avengers Endgame, ever. And um, that's special. That's really special. And uh, what the Russo brothers are able to do there, we've already talked about it a little bit, but is really, really phenomenal how they're able to bring a true ensemble cast of people together, uh, create the moments they created in that film, and then wrap it up in a way that 99% of the fan base is really happy about. Uh, truly spectacular. Right. And you're right, something you said earlier, uh, puts it in perspective when you look at Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, let's let's not think about that any further. But. All right, Scott, talk about Little Women. 
Yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't think I have any more to say, honestly, except I'll, I'll leave it at this. Um, I think that uh, this movie's the best movie of last year. I think it's the best movie of the decade. And I think that it is uh, rapidly moving up my list of favorite movies of all time. Uh, I look forward to growing with and experiencing this movie for years and years to come, sharing this with other people. Um, it is just so special to me in ways that I find difficult to articulate. Wow, rocket up that list. I remember a time not that long ago where you said, no way anything tops Midsommar. And uh, not only does it top yeah. Midsommar, but it topped your best of the decade list that we made three months, four months early. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that speaks to the brilliance, right? Because at the end of the day, I was looking at this movie and I said, yeah, the cast is amazing. The director is amazing. I love Little Women. But like, it's an adaptation, right? Like, I know the story. I kind of know what to expect. I don't know if this is anything that's going to absolutely blow my mind in the way that Midsummer did. Um, but this movie did. I, I wasn't expecting the take and the spin that Greta Gerwig put on the material. And I think that's why um, it, it you know, elevated beyond my wildest imagination. Yeah, I mean, look, I... I didn't love it as much as you did on the first watch. I still don't love it as much as you do on the second watch. But that's not because I don't love this movie. It's just because of how uh, strong that all of our <laughs> listener base, all of your followers on Twitter, and uh, have to know by now. I mean, they just—if it's not clear by the end of this episode, then there's nothing you will ever be able to say to anyone that uh, will convince them that you like Little Women. And I just need to try harder. Yeah, try harder. Take some, take some, uh, take some human growth hormone and try harder next yeah. time. Because uh, that's what Little Women needed more of, I'm sure, from some people's perspective. <laughs> but yeah, for me, Parasite, for me, I, I like I said, I've already said this like five seconds ago on the podcast, but best picture uh, for me for 2019, even if it was even if it was my second favorite film, it was a movie not unlike some of other movies that I've talked about already, and some of my favorite movies of the year. Where on the first watch, I thought it was great, but not everything clicked. You know, I wasn't so sure about how I felt about the sort of post-climax ending of the film with this whole um, story about like after what happens at the party uh, with Song Kang-ho and uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. And I watched it a second time and went back and, you know, had a couple months to sit with it and then went back and watched it again and everything clicked. And I just couldn't help but feel, you know, this is, this is a re, this is just something you don't get very often. 1917 is the same way. You feel the same about Little Women. It's just a movie that, you, you know, it, it, there's a film, foreign language, domestic, whatever, that may never be made like it again. That's able to capture, you know, a, a message, you know, lightning in a bottle, capture this message of you know, socioeconomic uh, status, have this thing to say about what it's like, what, what these dynamics are like and how people approach it and what's wrong with that in a way that's just so, I don't know, just so clever and so in, intuitive also at the same time and uh, leaves you at the end feeling like, you know, it's a this this battle between the, the socioeconomic classes, the Sisyphean uh, task that you, you know, you, you almost get to the top of the hill with a boulder, you know, the infighting knocks you down back the hill. And in spite of all that, in spite of the, you know, harsh journey, the consequences of the journey itself that you've already experienced, you just can't help but go again and always want something more than what you've, you know, than the hand that you've been dealt. And that's just a really uh, special message in the way that it's captured on the screen. Uh, it, this movie epitomizes show, don't tell. And it's something that often I think gets thrown around so much. Um, and I think it's a, it's a movie 
and you know, I haven't had this experience, but I, I would go out and say, this is a movie that you don't even need the subtitles to understand what the movie is saying. Like you could turn the subtitles off, watch the film, not know what's being said. And I still think get 75% of what's going on and the, and the key message. I think that's how, that's how good the filmmaking is. Bold and good, part, but interesting. And that's how good the performances are. I mean, of course, like I never do that because I know it's, I've now seen the movie enough times where I know yeah. what's being said. I can never have that test, but I think that you'd be able to get the key message of the film still. Um, and that, and that's just how good the movie is. Yeah. All right, Scott, we're going to take a short break. We are an hour and 56 minutes deep by my watch, uh, in our more, what we'll call more traditional Oscar-y awards-y, uh, type, uh, awards. And we're going to come back and we're going to do our somewhat get Scott special awards. We have a few, uh, awards that we kept from last year that are more unique and we're adding a new one, uh, which we'll introduce right after we get back from this break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the remaining awards of our second annual Some Like It Scott Awards, episode 81 of the podcast. And let's just go ahead and, and jump right back in, Scott. Before the break, I alluded to the fact that we have a handful, literally a handful. We have five more awards to give out, uh, four of them returning from last year. Those are, uh, well, I guess we have five. We have six awards. I lied. Uh, breakthrough Performance brightest light in the darkness, most attention-grabbing opening, most satisfying ending, scene moment of the year. But before we get to those, we have an, a new inaugural award here for this year that I look forward to deciding on who will win next year. And that is what we're going to call uh, the, the Cats Award. And that's because you know this is supposed to capture the movie that you like just have to go see with your friends and laugh at. And you get the enjoyment out of the movie because of uh, the spectacle that it is and not necessarily in a good way. An early contender, for example, might be Doolittle this year or something like that. I'm going to spare myself the uh, the experience of seeing Doolittle since I won't be able to see it with you. And I did get to see Cats with you. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe that is one, an early contender for that type of movie. But Cats and the absolute horror show uh, that it was, <laughs> including the original, uh, the fact that we got to see the original cut of this movie before the visual effects. Yeah, the Hooper cut, indeed, um, is, is spectacular. I mean, just as an anecdote uh, to, to Cats, too, and maybe this award gets cut next year because nothing quite can quite live up to it, but um, my girlfriend went and saw this film at midnight at a local indie theater in Boston that is now, I think, is literally going to show it once a month at midnight. Um, on, on And the the crowd, I didn't go because it was after, like, the best, one of the days of the best picture showcase she was going to see this movie after. I'm like, I can't do more movies today, um, especially in our Cats. But it was a completely packed theater, and this is a large theater, completely packed theater, people dressed in costumes, people like just shouting, heckling at the movie, um, like to the point where like you could barely even hear what was going on on the screen. Talk about uh, disrespectful to a film and just, I mean, absolute, absolute scenes, as you would say, uh, and not because of the scenes on the screen. But Scott, uh, what do you think of the Cats Award? Yeah, no, I like how we came up with this award and we didn't even really discuss what the award was going to represent. We were just like, yeah, the Cats Award, of course. Um, and yeah, of course, the winner is Cats. Um, yeah, no, I think this is a fun award. I, I think that 
you're right to say that this is a movie. It's about a movie that is fun to watch for your friends. Cause I don't think cats was the worst movie of this year. Uh, like I think there are definitely a few movies that we saw that were worse. And in terms of experience, there were definitely a lot of movies that I had a worse time at than I did watching cats. Um, and so I think a movie like that, you know, deserves to be seen on the big screen in its own way. Um, and uh, so I think that it, it's right to have to have an award, uh, you know, that that honors the a movie like that that will obviously never come up in any of the other awards categories that we have. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, look, the Golden Globes has the Cecil B. DeMille Awards. We have the Cats Awards. Think about that and think about which one you we can award. We have Mistopheles Award. Yeah, uh, taught you just unspeakable things happening in cast. Forget about, yeah, I mean, Mr. Mistopheles is, is definitely one of them, but I will never be able to get out of my mind the image of Idris Elba's uh, oh, coat, coatless cavity. Yeah. yeah, the cavity, taking his taking his overcoat off. Man, that's just a true, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scott, it, Scott rubs his forehead and sighs in relief that he never has to see that again. Because, um, wow, what, what, a, what a moment that was in the theater. Thank God we were a little bit tipsy. Indeed. All right, moving on to the uh, more, well, for now at least, we awards that we have more to say about this year. It'll be interesting to see how the Cats Award evolves for next year. But let's start with breakthrough performance. For a little bit of context, last year, I believe that we both gave this to, oh no, I gave this to Elsie Fisher. I went Anya Taylor-Joy, yeah. And you went with Anya Taylor-Joy for Thoroughbreds. I did Elsie <coughs> Fisher for great, of course. Scott, who do you think were some of the honorable mentions for breakthrough performance this year? Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, talking about child actors, uh, there were two that really stood out. Julia Butters and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, really memorable extended sequences with her and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, her performance showed maturity far beyond her years and the fact that she was able to go toe to toe with one of the most revered actors of our time. And, you know, first thing I've ever seen her in uh, is very impressive. Uh, Roman Griffin Davis being the other one in Jojo Rabbit, even though I'm not like head over heels for this movie. Um, I think his performance is, is so accomplished and again, shows maturity and wisdom beyond his years and, and craft beyond his years. I think he'll probably go on to do great things uh, acting. Uh, and then the other one I mentioned was uh, Samara Weaving, who really had a breakthrough this year with uh, her starring role in Ready or Not, a movie that I think people loved a lot more than they were expecting. Um, uh, just a really fun sort of, uh, horror horror thriller um set in this mansion um you know that that just comedy. yeah co co comedy yeah uh ha had some knives out vibe to kni knives out vibes to it a little bit actually but um that was a lot of fun like i said a, a lot more fun than i think people were expecting and uh samara weaving really left an impact as this sort of badass heroine uh at the center who's kind of a one woman army against this uh insidious family that's all trying to kill her and she gets a great final scene outside of the mansion that uh, really cements her character. Yeah, I mean, the last five minutes of that movie were absolute bonkers. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed I mean, I'll raise my hand and say I absolutely enjoyed that movie. Uh, agreed on the front of Julia Butters uh, being a standout. Roman Griffin Davis, including his co-star Archie Yates, who plays, um, oh man. Yorkie. Yorkie, yeah. I mean, that kid, that kid's... That kid's going to be in some comedies in the future for sure. Yeah, he's I mean, hilarious. hilarious. Um, but yeah, Roman Griffin Davis, I think, could probably do uh, could, can do about anything in terms of child acting, especially in a year where we saw some pretty terrible child acting performances uh, <coughs> this year. Going back to, I mean, we don't have to we don't have to 
There's no, there's no need to the Dumbo kids. Yeah, there's, no need, there's no need to dump on them. The Dumbo kids for sure. There's a few others in there as well, but there's lots of good child acting going on. And they're not, not necessarily still a child, but Taylor Russell, someone who had kind of two roles this year, one in Escape Room as more of a lead role, but then her kind of supporting turn in Waves, maybe marred by a little bit by the fact that that whole arc that she goes on in the second half of the film is just a big letdown in some ways, and I feel like it really does take away some parts um, of the movie overall, but I still really liked her performance in that. I think that it's a strong performance, and I think she's definitely going to to use that as a platform to, to get more roles. Uh, another one for me, probably the last unique one that I have, is uh, Jodie Turner-Smith for her, I think, breakthrough performance in Queen and Slim. She'd been in a couple of things before, but certainly the first time that I think she's been uh, in a mainstream lead role, and what she's able to do alongside Daniel Kaluuya, directed by Melina Matsukis. Uh, it's, it's a real breakthrough performance. And in spite of the fact that, you know, we didn't give it much, if any, airtime on the podcast at all, you know, this movie did do pretty well at the box office, relatively speaking. I mean, we're not talking Knives Out numbers here, but it did really well in what might be called its core audience, of course, you know, the, the black movie-going audience, I think, really came out for this movie uh, in a way that made a lot of sense when you watch this movie. And um, this movie really took me by surprise in a lot of really powerful ways that I wasn't expecting out of the film. And you know, that's why I ended up in, you know, pretty high on my top, you know, 15 list. I think it was definitely inside my top 15 by the end of the year. And uh, really impressed with her performance, looking forward to what she does in the future with or without Daniel Kaluuya. Um, the only other one, which I know you're about to talk about in a second, not to spoil things, is Julia Fox in Uncut Gems. And so I will say that she is a big honorable mention on my list, could have easily made her my winner. Uh, but Scott, I'll let you take it away since she is your winner for Best Breakthrough Performance. Yeah, no, I mean, this is somebody uh, talking about Julia Fox that wasn't even really an actress. I don't think she was uh, a friend of the Safdie brothers that they'd been wanting to cast in something. And uh, th they gave her her shot here in, in Uncut Gems, and she absolutely crushed it out of the park. I think that this character and this performance are so essential uh, to the movie because she is the heart and soul, right? And part of the thing that makes us sympathize as much as we can with a despicable character like Howard is the relationship that he has with, uh, with Julia Fox's Julia. And we see that she actually does, despite all of his flaws, he, she actually does genuinely care for him. And because uh, she cares for him and we care about her, uh, you know, we, we, by extension, uh, feel more goodwill towards Howard than we probably should. And so I think it's such an important character and performance um, and, yeah, uh, she she has a great New York attitude that I think fits in with uh, with Adam Sandler and with with what everyone else is doing in this movie. Um, I think it, it it blew me away. Was definitely as much as I was you know shocked by how great Sandler is in the movie. Uh, I, another one of my first reactions after seeing this was, "Who is this person? Who is Julia Fox?" Yeah, and you look her up, and you know you're right. She hasn't done a single other acting role. It is her debut role. And to be given such a, you know, central to, to your point, a very central role. Yes, Adam Sandler is, you know, in nearly every scene. But like you said, as much as maybe that Sandler is the lifeblood of the energy of the movie, Julia Fox, I think, is who you latch onto in terms of a character to root for. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, <laughs> like at this point, uh, that dynamic, and she masters it. I absolutely would have loved to put her as my winner, uh, but I did decide to be a little bit different. Yeah, and for me, being different meant going back and talking about 1917 again. <laughs> so, you know, on brand for me, uh, that's George Mackay. I, you know, I could have easily also put Dean Charles Chapman in here as well, but George Mackay felt like the real breakthrough of the two. And, and 
Also, Dean Charles Chapman had been in Game of Thrones, so I feel a little bit less strong about that being a breakout role for him. But George Mackay, yes, he's been in this or that and a couple other things, but I don't know how many people had eyes on George Mackay before this movie. And for me, someone who very easily could have been in the best actor uh, category this year, someone who you put on your honorable mention list, uh, I didn't fit him into my laundry list of people on, uh, as my honorable just because I was going to talk about him here. And the role that he uh, plays, the performance that he gives, as and the journey, the journey that this character goes on. You know, he goes on this mission because he's chosen by Dean Charles Chapman's uh, Blake, uh, just because he's sleeping next to him at the start of the movie. And the fact that the you know the roller coaster journey that he goes through, and the you know I don't know resentment that he feels at certain points for being dragged along on this on this journey that is not his. You know, th- this mission is Blake's ultimately. Yeah, it's he's trying to save his brother, and you know who's a member of this, you know, this battalion who's going to um, charge at the German line, you know, go into a trap. It's Blake's mission. And then the fact that, you know, George Mackay is saddled with this mission alongside him and then by himself, you know, for the second half of the movie and, you know, bears it so well and bears it, you know, with a lot of angst and agony and pain, um, but also, you know, a great deal of pride and, um, you know, care for the work, for what he's doing. And, uh, I think what I think ultimately, as I've watched this movie four times now, which is probably an absurd number of times to see this movie in theaters, but you know, four times now, um, one of the selling points of this whole performance, I think the cherry on top, is the quiet moment that he has uh, in you know the burnt out city of Akus with this French woman and this baby that's not hers. I think it's just the emotional counterbalance that this that this performance needed, and it just balances it perfectly. And I just can't wait to see him in more things. Yeah, I agree. And there's a reason I had him as an honorable mention for best actor. I think it's an understated, but uh, wonderful performance. Yep. All right, Scott, brightest light in the darkness. Again, I'll just give a little bit of context for this award from last year. Brightest light in the darkness. You chose Anna Kendrick for a simple favor. Uh, I also chose another actor from that movie, but I went the other direction with Blake Lively from a simple favor. Scott, who do you have as an honorable mention for this this year? Yeah, just a few, because fortunately we didn't see a lot of like really that bad movies. Um, uh, and so I, you know, didn't have a, a ton to choose from here, but uh, Emma Nelson uh, from Where'd You Go Bernadette, a movie that I obviously had high expectations for because it's Richard Linklater and always have high expectations for his movies. Um, and, you know, there are a, cu- a couple good performances in this movie, um, even though it didn't work overall. But I think I was really impressed. I could have put her in breakthrough performance as well, because obviously she's a young actress. haven't really seen her in much. Um, but I was really impressed with she did here alongside Kate Blanchett and uh, Billy Crudup, to name a few. Um, and then Haley Lou Richardson, um, it was by far the best part of Five Feet Apart, as she is about most of the movies that she is, and she's the best part of them. Um, she's an absolute rock star and can't wait to see what she does. I, I think maybe not quite a name that people are are totally familiar with, but I think for me personally is right up there with like the Florence Pugh's in terms of uh, promising young actress talent uh, that we're hopefully going to be hearing a lot from uh, in the years to come. She already has a lot of really interesting and good projects under her belt. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what she does going forward. But yeah, she was, she was awesome and five feet apart. Yeah. I mean, I loved her and support the girls last year, which I, I didn't see until this year, to be fair. I, I have to raise my hand and say yeah. that. Columbus is a movie you really need to watch. She's fantastic in that. With well, her that's what I was about to say, because especially with after Yang, 
coming out this year um, with, sorry. Yeah, I was just saying, yeah, which is Koganata's next movie. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Kogan, yeah, Koganata directed and Columbus being, I don't know if it's his debut film or what it was. So. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, a, a standout film that is, you know, absolutely near the top of my list. And I will 100% see that before after Yang. And that is supposed to come out this year. So I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing that because I, you know, you have, you have been talking about that performance. I mean, I feel like ever, ever since, at least ever since five feet apart when we were talking about her, but I think even since support the girls last year. So it's been on my list uh, on my radar for a while. I'm really looking forward to catching up with that one. I would, I would agree on that front in terms of a uh, breakout, uh, sorry, brightest light in the darkness. Another person, uh, you felt a little bit more uh, positive about this movie than I did, but I thought, um, extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile was an absolute turd of a movie like just i don't know i don't even know how to describe how frustrated that movie made me but that being said i can also take a step back and note that zach efron's performance as ted bundy uh was probably too good but too good uh of, of a performance from considering the, the role that is required of him uh zach efron someone who has had a mixed past probably in terms of the, the roles that he's chosen Maybe even the performances that he's given as well. I remember seeing some real stinkers like Charlie St. Cloud or some garbage from like a decade ago. And, you know, he's come a long ways. He's come a long ways. He's doing different things, not unlike his kind of um, fellow actors like Robert Pattinson or um, Shia LaBeouf, people like that who are really. I'm sorry. Said Kristen Stewart. I was just throwing yeah, it up. Yeah, Kristen Stewart, exactly. Like people who are trying to just change the, change the trajectory of their careers a little bit. And I think that as much of a stinker as this movie was for me, I think that it is, it is definitely a, a notch in his belt, so to speak, uh, for changing the trajectory of his career. So I give a shout out to him. I have mixed feelings of putting Mackenzie Davis on this list. I didn't think Terminator Dark Fate was all that bad, but it did get, you know, it did bomb at the box office at the very least. And she was quite good. I mean, she, I didn't see the turning. Was that the latest piece of trash that she was in? Got an F cinema score, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a horror like bad horror movies always get F, F cinema scores just because they're so uh, unappealing uh, at, at their core. There's nothing redeeming about them when the movies themselves are bad, but that's unfortunate uh, that she was a part of that and you know part of two box office bombs back to back really for here. I'm I'm looking forward to her getting back on track this year. She does have a, a few more promising looking projects ahead, and <coughs> I, I hope the best for her as well. And then you know as, as much as I praise that, I'm driver. For his role in Marriage Story, I do need to give a shout out for his performance as Kylo Ren. Constantly one of the best things about the sequel trilogy here, the last three Star Wars movie, mainline Star Wars movies in the Skywalker saga that we've gotten. Uh, he, he's a great Kylo Ren. What can I say? I mean, as much as I despise one of the key parts of his character that they wrote in uh, for him at the end of Rise of Skywalker and his relationship with Rey and whatnot, I think that's absolute trash. I cannot believe that they did that. Um, but you know, his performance nevertheless always felt like it, it was the, like the nuanced villain that all star Wars lacked before he came along. And so I, I loved this performance as guys, Kylo Ren throughout all three movies. Yeah, no, he's, he's fantastic. All right, Scott, sticking with rise of Skywalker, since it was, uh, easily the most disappointing movie of the year. Yeah. Why don't you tell the listeners who are, uh, United pick for Brightest Light in the Darknesses. Yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, even though this isn't the worst movie of the year, I think when you're talking about the darkness, this was the darkness of 2019 because we were so excited for this movie. Um, I, you know, I, I'm on record saying I thought that this could have been the best Star Wars trilogy of the three of them had it had it had the proper 
uh, ending. And yeah, it, it was soul crushing experience, honestly, watching a lot of this movie um, in theaters. Um, but something that was not soul crushing about the movie, one of the few things was Anthony Daniels uh, as C-3PO, reminding us what we love about Star Wars and just you know the few moments that he had on screen uh, brought some wonderful humorous scenes to his role. I mean, his now incredibly iconic role as C-3PO, but also brought one of the few moments of genuine emotion to the movie, which is um, when he has to have his memory wiped in. Uh, you know, you see it there in the trailer, but I think even more so in the movie, it, it strikes a chord with you because this is a character that appears in every Star Wars movie. I mean, yeah, the, only, kind of, well, the only the only actor to appear in every in all nine. Yeah. In, in the Skywalker saga, I should say, obviously, he's not in Rogue One or anything like that. But um, but yeah, um, and, and, you know, he he we're so familiar with this character that um, he, he you know, th this scene really affects you um, and. It was it was a moment that J, even J.J. Abrams' uh, direction couldn't ruin in this movie, and so uh, yeah, he he was by far the bright spot of a pretty pretty dark movie for me. So uh, Anthony Daniels, shout out to you for all the you know the 30, 30 40 odd years of uh, of iconic uh, C three PO performances. Yeah, no C three PO. It's look, I love BB eight. Maybe I could have said BB eight was the brightest light in the darkness because. Maybe my favorite character in all of Star Wars. Let's be real; he's an absolute absolute icon. I have a BB-8 pin on my jean jacket that I that I wear around. Love that little droid. But Anthony Daniels, in terms of performances, probably does give that standout one. As a joke, I almost wrote in the Tenet prologue uh, scene that that showed before my IMAX screening of Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker because that was definitely the most excited I was in the entire three-hour time that I was in the theater uh, during Rise of Skywalker. But no. Uh, all jokes aside, Anthony Daniels gave a great performance as C-3PO. And it's not that it was that different than the other performance that he gave. It's just the fact that he, to your point, he had the emotional moment in the film that hit the hardest. And uh, you got to give credit where credit's due. He delivered it. Absolutely. All right, Scott. Just a few more awards left. Uh, two ending awards before we get to our scene of the year, which is, of course, our, our thing for our movie reviews. Um, but let's start with most um, attention-grabbing opening probably should uh, optimize the wording of that award. But last year, we, again, were united with our pick. That was for searching. I mean, the first five minutes of that movie, I move you to tears. It's incredible how quickly it moves you to tears without a single line of dialogue. Uh, TBD on whether anything lived up to that this year, but let's start with your honorable mentions. Yeah, well, I'll just say, I don't think it did. I think this was one of the tougher categories, uh, kind of like adapted screenplay we were talking about. I don't know that there were a lot of opening scenes that really stuck out to me as strong as the movies were this year, just looking back through uh, some of my favorites this year, but um, some ones that I had for my honorable mention, uh, Avengers Endgame, I think answering one of the big questions that we had after Infinity War right at the beginning, which is where was Hawkeye and how did, how was he affected by the snap? Um, and, you know, really killed Thanos. Yeah. Well that, that too, but I, I'm specifically referring to the opening scene only. Totally. Um, and you know, just right, right there from the beginning, sucking you into the emotion with, uh, with you know, Hawkeye's entire family getting getting dusted right as he turns his back, and then they're gone. Uh, you know, kind of the first shocking moment that really you know got an audience reaction uh, when when I when we saw this in theaters, and you know, just setting the stage for what was to come. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is a movie that I really loved. It didn't come up really a lot in the other other parts of the show, but. Um, Set starting off with that sort of basically self-contained uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood episode, right? That is sort of um, 
setting up the the story of Matthew Reese's character that we're about to see in the movie was uh, a wonderful sort of nostalgic moment setting setting the scene there from the beginning. Um, and then Marriage Story, which um, yeah, again, I have a few issues with this movie, but on the whole, really admire it. And I think the opening is really, really strong. The um, why I love Charlie and why I love Nicole uh, sort of dueling uh, letters that we hear being read out and then uh, going from sort of the romantic highs of the things that they're saying about each other uh, to like suddenly pe pe peeling away the veil and realizing, oh, hey, these people aren't actually really in love anymore. They're um, they're in, you know, marriage counseling and that things are, are probably uh, about they're, to, they're actually in divorce mediation. They're not even in marriage. counseling. Yeah, that, that true. Um, and, and things are going south for them quickly. Nicole won't even read her letter. Um, and so I think that sort of jarring emotional shift, um, again, really sets the tone for the movie that's to come. So I really like that opening. Yeah. Agreed in terms of honorable mentions about Avengers Endgame here. The, the Hawkeye opening scene is pretty grabbing. Uh, talk about just things that will shake you to your core. It's a little tough because it's it's kind of an extended opening sequence, but Midsommar's opening that kind of culminates with this you know, just horribly graphic scene of um, Florence Pugh's, uh, is it Danny, her character's name? Danny's sister um, murdering their parents and committing suicide. It's just very, this very gruesome pan through the house uh, that's just horrible and, and Talk about attention grabbing. I think that probably uh, encapsulates that phrase uh, pretty well, uh, to say the least. And then uh, another one, which, of course, you're not going to be privy to just because you haven't seen the movie, is Honey Boy's opening scene, which is uh, Lucas Hedges. Yeah, Lucas Hedges attached to a rig doing essentially doing stunts for, I don't know if they ever named what the movies are in the film, but it's the trans. it's supposed to be the Transformers franchise. Um, of Sh you know, when Shia LaBeouf was shooting those movies. And the opening scene is just him with like a completely expressionless face being yanked by this rig for these stunts, uh, presumably for these explosions. And it's just so attention grabbing in that you're like, what the hell is going on here? Like, this is not what you ex like what you'd expect from. I mean, well, one, just a movie opening, but two from an act. If you know anything about the movie, then, you know, the acting performance at center here and it immediately sets the tone for a movie that it just explores this this like search of search for self and search for meaning because uh, you can immediately see in Lucas Hedges' face that whatever he's doing it has no meaning for him whatsoever um, and so I found that opening really attention grabbing and, and one that was a little bit less seen uh, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, again, I still need to check the movie out. Good movie. All right, Scott, I know that I mentioned your your winner already, so go ahead. Yeah, it's Midsummer, um, and it's hard to exactly pinpoint, like you said, what how far the opening reaches here, but I think just the extended uh, scenes that we get prior to them leaving for Sweden all just beautifully set the stage for the emotional uh, turmoil that is to come. Like you said, the murder-suicide that happens, Danny's horrified reaction to that, the uh, tra traumatic cries that we hear from her, which again then play another role in the movie as as the story goes on, um, setting up the relationship between Danny and Christian as uh, you know, maybe not uh, explicitly like insidious or or uh, aggressive towards each other, but there's just something not quite right in the way that they're interacting, and there's there's something not quite right in the way that Christian, in particular, um, is behaving towards Danny. And obviously, we get the the scene at the restaurant where he's 
basically saying that he wants to break up with her, but uh, feels bad. And obviously once the, the family member, her family members die, he, he feels that he can't break up with her. So yeah, it's just, just sets up everything wonderfully before you get to, I mean, because the commune is, is like such a large and uh, obviously the part of the movie that you remember, I think it, it might be easy to forget the, or, or, you know, breeze over this opening and just see it as like exposition. But uh, I think there's a lot of uh, really necessary elements there that whether you realize it or not, um, forecast what is to come when we when we do get to uh sweden so really love the opening of midsummer yeah and and to harken back almost to the the beginning of our kind of awards here and talk about the cinematography and you talked about how setting up like the the setting of the commune for me the standout part of the cinematography here ha having yeah. to do with the opening the is not shot, yeah. no that isn't what i was going to say yeah. but that i mean yes that is a cool shot but the pan, I mean, the pan through the house also is a good shot but the one most of all is just the work that they do with mirrors uh, in the opening parts of the movie and and how many reflections that they show and, and they track people through reflections, I think is uh, really lends itself to this atmosphere of something really not quite right, uh, right? I just think that that really plays in well to the opening of the movie and particularly for LA, yeah, in, when they're in Pele's apartment, uh, that particular mirror shot really, really does it for me. I think that's just an incredible, incredible shot. And I've only seen it once. I know you've seen it, what, three times, four mm -hmm. times? Three times. Um, it three times and i it, this is i know this is a movie that you you will definitely get a lot more on the second time that you watch it it's, it's like a hundred percent the type of movie and i'm just waiting for the right emotional moment where i feel like i can watch the movie again fair uh, i can go back and get that because uh you know i saw this movie in theaters at perfectly the right time uh for me to see that movie i was in emotionally what felt like the the right place to be in uh, to see that film which is a conversation for another time yes um but it was it, it i mean everything clicked for me when i saw that movie and it was probably because of the mindset that i was in at the time and uh, yeah for me you mentioned it already as well for me it's it's marriage stories opening the i love charlie uh i love nicole dueling monologues uh for me it's just it's all it, it, it's so in contrast to the rest of the film, but at the same time, so synchronous with the rest of the film. And it really sets up this narrative that, yes, this movie is called Marriage Story. You know, as soon as it breaks from that opening scene, it's, you know, you learn that maybe it's not really about a marriage, it's about the dissolution of a marriage. Uh, but I think it's really important to remember that opening because it's about the cycle of love or like the journey of love that these two people go on together, of which, you know, their marriage and, and the good times and the things that they love about each other are a critical part. It's not a part that you ever necessarily experience explicitly on screen, but it really frames, um, it really frames the whole conversation, I think, uh, that the movie eventually goes on and, and journeys across. And for that reason, and to your point, when you were describing it, <laughs> I one of mentions, it's a, it's a big shift when it goes from, you know, this movie about these two, well, about the aspects of the movie that are, sorry, the aspects of each other that they, that they love to, um, you know, this, this divorce mediation. And, and I just thought that it was the perfect opening uh, for the movie. I, you know, I thought a lot about this film. I did, I did rewatch it um, outside the theater. I got to watch it for the first time in the theater and then watch it on Netflix and thought more about it. And I just don't think that there's a better way to start this movie than with these sort of monologues. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a perfect opening. And then it, the way that it bookends at the end of the movie um, is is beautiful, too. And thank you for providing my segue to most satisfying ending, Scott. What are your honorable mentions? Yeah, no, this, by contrast to uh, attention-grabbing opening, I think there were a lot of great choices for satisfying endings. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, obviously very divisive ending, but I think in particular the very, very end of Rick Dalton, you know, going up the pathway to Sharon Tate's house and them meeting outside the house there is such a wonderful moment of movie magic that that Tarantino, uh, you know, makes happen with this movie. I mean, obviously he... He loves movies so much and he loves showing off the power of what movies can do and the things he can do uh, through the medium of movies. And this moment just feels like the ultimate. I mean, I guess killing Hitler maybe is the ultimate moment, but um, very close to it is the the ultimate moment of him, uh, you know, highlighting exactly what movies mean to him and, and the, the power that they can have bringing Sharon Tate back to life bringing these two people together um, and having them meet and having that be the end of the movie, I think is, is very lovely. Knives out obviously hasn't, we talk about satisfying. I mean, the final shots of, of, uh, of Ana de Armas is Marta standing there on the balcony of the house, sipping from that cup, which it kind of, that was supposedly like an improvised moment or whatever um, is, is so wonderful. Um, and yeah, my coffee, baby. Yeah, exactly. Talking about uh, satisfying, she the way she gets her comeuppance after you know we've had to endure the despicable Thromby family for the entirety of this movie um, is is a great thing to watch. And the other one I had down is the one that you'll pick as the winner, so I won't really say anything about it right now. I will say that it might have objectively the best ending, but talking about most satisfying endings, I went with something else just because uh, for, for reasons that I'll explain when you talk about it. No, and, and you know, I I hear what you're saying. What we get for yours, I left I left yours off my honorable mentions list because otherwise it would absolutely uh, be on it. But yeah, for me, Avengers Endgame talk about satisfying endings. The ending, I mean, kind of like with the opening conversation that we talked about, how long something stretches. I'm not sure how long the ending of Endgame stretches, but man, there is like nothing that will top in terms of <laughs> for me in terms of like fandom of the you know the, the I'm Iron Man moment again i know that's not the very end of the movie you do get some more moments and uh, that being said i still like the end of the movie which ends with captain america finally getting to live the life that he was denied being able to live right and you know i think that there's lots of questions around that and and maybe even some question marks about timeline and what was possible what was not possible in the mcu but you know what when a movie is as good as in game is and even though i think that you can create a very defensible argument for why it was okay to be able to do that i think at the same time it doesn't freaking matter. I mean, the movie was so good and getting a satisfying ending that Cap getting to live the life that he knew that he was maybe destined to live, but denied that destiny. Um, it, it felt it felt right to me. And that was why it was one of the more satisfying endings of the year for me. I agree about Knives Out. I agree about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, as much as I have, um, I go back and forth about the end of Jojo, uh, sorry, about Jojo Rabbit as a movie. I think the ending is awesome. The, the scene when they walk out of the house when uh, sorry, Thomas C. McKenzie and, and Roman Griffin Davis's characters walk out of the house and start dancing. That is like the one time in the movie where the emotions really overwhelm you, I yes, think. But not the best movie to feature uh, David Bowie's song Heroes at the end. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I mean, f- fair enough. I'm just saying like that that particular moment it's in that scene, thing. especially on the second watch when I saw it in the Best Picture Showcase, I don't think my opinion changed on the movie overall, but man, that scene is awesome. 
And I just, I love Thomas E. McKenzie and Roman Griffin Davis. I hope they do wonderful things in the future. Uh, just the whole Scarlett Johansson uh, subplot, as much as the performance is good, I just think that there's supposed to be some emotional weight involved with that character, and it's just lacking for me. I don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, satisfying ending, check. Uh, book smart, the ending, you know, just when you think it's getting all serious and all, uh, it does get one more joke in uh, about going to get waffles after she, uh, after I should say, after Amy, you know, kind of fakes out and leaves, uh, drops her off, Molly drops her off the airport. <laughs> she has more time, they're gonna go get waffles. Just a satisfying way to end an overall comedy. Again, a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit less serious. And then for me, uh, satisfying endings, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, this is a movie that, again, it's still very fresh in my mind, uh, but it's a movie that at times I thought that it should have been emotionally affecting me more than it was. It's a very quiet movie. There's literally no score in the film. There's no background music uh, at any part of the movie, but there are two moments in the film that use uh, use music and they're both integrated into what's happening to the scene where it's like not part of like a, a score. Um, and one of those is sort of one of the climaxes of the film where you get the title scene, the portrait of a lady on fire. You get her with uh, with um, Adele Hyrell's uh, character uh, on fire, her dress is on fire. Uh, that's, a, that's a moment that uses music. And then the second time is the very end of the movie uh, as you know the main character here played by Noemi Merlant, uh, her character thinks back about other times that she saw this character Eloise uh, after their time together on this island. And she is, um, she recalls the last time that she saw her in an auditorium where uh, she, this is purely by chance, she, she sees her across the balcony um, listening to Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is playing, which has a, some significance in the movie. And um, she watches her, the, 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 the camera just pans in on Eloise's face, and she's just emotionally overwhelmed um, by Summer. It's the, I think Summer is the movement that they're playing in, in of Vivaldi. And it's just a completely emotionally overwhelming scene. That was like the time where all the emotion that, it, that I felt like sh I should have been feeling through the movie, finally, I don't know, the dam breaks, and you feel it. You feel it both in the performance of uh, Adele Hyrell's character, but also, um, uh, just in, in in the movie overall there, and it was a really satisfying ending to a movie that I wasn't sure whether it should be affecting me more than it was. At the end, it did. All right, Scott, what's your winner? Wild Rose. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more satisfying ending than I think uh, what you get at the end of this movie. Again, we've talked so much about the journey that she goes on. I think the ending works because the movie is feels very realistic throughout, and I think that the ending is is definitely there's definitely a little bit of wish fulfillment there but there's just enough reality i think to where you believe that uh this is you know th that this ending could actually happen with jesse buckley singing the wonderful song glasgow uh, at the grand alt opry everyone is there you're talking about her family her mother her children they're all looking at her with you know pride and everything sophie okonedo's character who she works for for a lot of the movie she's there with her children um it's kind of just like everyone comes together and almost avengers endgame portal style sequence they all come together at the end uh to to unite around uh their support of of rosalind's singing career and you know even though she um hasn't made it, she didn't make it to Nashville. She, she didn't decide to go to Nashville and become a country singer like she'd always dreamed of. Um, 
the smile that she has at the end of the song shows that she, she's in the exact right place that she needs to be. And she's able to do what she loves singing without compromising um, the, the people that she cares about too. So um, it, it, it's a, it's a wonderful scene. And I think that it's all the more satisfying because, you know, it's a star is born was a similar type uh, movie that we had last year in terms of the story and obviously had a, big time downer of an ending. Uh, and so to, to go the complete other direction with this and have a big time upper of an ending, I think felt, felt really earned. Yeah. Uh, emotional on different ends of the spectrum, but those exactly. endings are incredibly powerful. And yeah. you know, I mean, like I said, I only let this off my list just cause I knew you were going to wax lyrical about it. Uh, cause I a hundred percent would, uh, would be, would be, uh, would be on my list. Yeah. All right, Scott, for me, you left it off uh, mentioning in, in your list of honorable mentions uh, because it was my winner, and that is the ending of Uncut Gems. Doesn't seem like the movie that you would pick uh, for your most satisfying ending as uh, full spoilers here for those of you who haven't seen it, and I'd strongly recommend uh, skipping forward a couple minutes so you don't get this spoiled. But uh, yeah, Adam Sandler gets his brains blown out at the end of this movie uh, after he wins the bet. Uh, you know, he, he, hit, he, hits the, he hits the biggest score of his life uh, Leth opens the door for uh, the the people that he is locked in, kind of the I guess like the atrium of his jewelry store, and promptly a gun is pulled on him and he is shot in the face. And at first glance, I mean, first off, we'll say you will never get a larger gasp in a movie theater than a theater full of people who have not seen that movie who don't know what's about to happen. I mean, I was guilty of gasping when I saw it the first time in a full theater. And when we saw it together, Scott, in, in Chattanooga, we were home uh, over the Christmas period. Man, it was so satisfying just to hear like the 10 people that were in the theater uh, gasp at this ending. Um, and that's not the reason why I chose this. It's, I'm not picking this because of the shock value of what happens in the movie, because when you actually sit back and you actually think about the way this movie ends, there is no other way this movie can end and it makes sense and it feel right and it does, it does, you know, you have like this character of Howard Ratner, like it, his life is this sort of competing um, hold my beer moments of scores. And at some point it's not about getting lucky or unlucky. It's just like, you have to pay the piper uh, like the, about your sins, about your addiction, about your whatever it is. And no matter how many times he had the option to get out, he always chose to up the, up the ante even more go again for a bigger, cause it isn't about hitting the score for Howie. It's about the thrill of, of making another bet. And this bet didn't pay out even though he won it, uh, even though he won several bets over the course of the movie, none of them paid out uh, truly for him. And you can't, I don't know, it just doesn't for me, it feels like it's the only way this movie can make any sense. And not just that, but the way the movie ends, not just necessarily with, Howard uh, with a shot of Howard being um, shot in the head. Really, the movie ends on Julia Fox leaving the casino with the $1.5 million or whatever it is. And, you know, she's in Atlantic City going back to New York. Um, and then, of course, the the um, I guess the, the loan sharks or whatever that are that are with how that are, you know, that take down Howard, um, you know, ransacking his jewelry store and making it off, making it look like a, a robbery. And just knowing that everything makes sense in the movie and the character that you were rooting for in the form of Julia uh, gets her just desserts, not in the form of what happened to Howard, but you know, if anyone was going to win $1.5 million, she was the one who you'd want to win it. 
Right. Yeah. Like I, I think I just have competing feelings about calling it satisfying. Like it's dramatically satisfying for sure. For the reasons that you say, like this is the way that the movie needs to end. And so it's satisfying in the sense that, you know, you have, you've had a great movie up until that point <clears throat> sticks the landing. It's also satisfying if you do look at it from, uh, from Julia Fox's perspective, right? Which maybe you're supposed to, right? Cause she is the character that you root for through the entire time. And you could argue, and I have said all along that I think that you could argue that, um, this is the best case scenario for her at the, at the end of the movie, what ends up happening at the same time, I think like it, compared to something like wild Rose, it, it's still hard to feel good about a lot of what happens at the end of uncut gems. And I think that's why I uh, hesitate uh, again, against something like knives out or, or, uh, or, um, or wild Rose to call it like the most satisfying ending, even though I think that I certainly don't fault you for, Saying that, and like I said, it might actually be the best ending to a movie. Yeah, for me, I, I think there's several dimensions to satisfying, which is exactly what you're getting at here. I think emotion, emotional satisfaction, look, Wild Rose, totally, totally here, the emotionally satisfying nature of that ending, because you feel good. You feel good after the ending of that movie. Uh, you can't help any other way but feel good. And with Uncut Gems, you don't necessarily feel good, but it, it's satisfying in that, like, oh, this was a good story. Um, right. This story really ties up really nicely, and if not immediately, I think over time, you do feel good about the ending to the extent that that's possible with something like Uncut Gems. Yeah, yeah. All right, Scott, this is it—the finale, <laughs> best scene or moment of the year that was 2019. Just to briefly go back to 2018 one more time, you said the moon landing scene from First Man. I said. Uh, Cleo and the fam and her saving the children on the beach in Roma. Scott, what are the honorable mentions for this year's best scene or moment award? Yeah, you know, we always have a lot for these, so I'll just quickly touch on these. The Spawn Ranch sequence, the long extended sequence from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with uh, Brad Pitt, and after he returns Margaret Qualley's character to the Spawn Ranch, and you know, going into finding Bruce Stern's character, and uh, you know, the violence that eventually ensues there is a great. Classic, classic Tarantino, long set piece built that slowly builds suspense that then culminates in, um, and, you know, this explosion of violence. I mean, that's just textbook Tarantino. Frank Sheeran's phone call to uh, to Jimmy Hoffa's wife in The Irishman, amazing moment of acting from De Niro, really sums up so much of uh, the, the you know, what, what the movie is saying about this character and the effect that... Um, that this life that he has chosen has had on his ability to just like have personal interactions with people and emotionally get on someone's level emotionally and empathize with them. So that's a great scene uh, from the Irishman, the flares at night sequence. I've said a lot about uh, from 1917 is just beautiful and thrilling and like nothing I've seen in a war movie before the portal sequence from Endgame. You know, this one's hard to beat everyone returning. You knew it was going to happen uh, at some point in the movie, but uh, can't, I can't think of a more satisfying way for it to happen than with them all coming out of the portals and then Avengers assemble and then, the, you know, just the big battle that ensues. Uh, why I love Charlie from Marriage Story, not just the opening, like I said, but the way that it comes back around at the ending with Nicole, um, seeing Charlie discover the letter that she wrote and the emotional moment that they share together and they kind of finally, for the first time, maybe in the movie come to some sort of an understanding that even if they can't be together, um, there's always going to be a part of them that still loves the other person. Um, and I think that uh, that's, you know, 
that, that's as much of a silver lining, I think, as you're going to kind of get from Marriage Story. So I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> Herb's execution sequence from Just Mercy. This is the uh, Rob Morgan character that Jamie Foxx uh, is in a cell next to when he's on death row. And um, of course, Jamie Foxx gets out uh, of death row by the end. But uh, this whole sequence shows that not everyone gets out and uh, it's really emotional. And um, he, you know, he asks asking them to play the old rugged cross as he walks to the to the electric chair. I mean, that that made me break down. That made me start crying. Um, and it's, you know, a, a great sequence, a powerful sequence that shows the horrors of the death penalty um, that this movie does a good job of illustrating. As far as action sequences go, uh, for me, it was between the the motorcycle chase from uh, Gemini Man, which I think is fantastic, but also the one that I went with was uh, the knife store sequence from John Wayne Chapter Three Parabellum uh, with the knife throwing, uh, and that it, it, it's just such a creative and you know, again, obviously, brilliantly choreographed sequence, and the the last. A shot of, of of Keanu Reeves throwing the final knife to kill the guy who you thought was dead or whatever uh, to to put the final stick the final knife in literally. Uh, it's, yeah, we should make a best choreography award next year. I can't believe we forgot to do that this year. Yeah, we should. Um, a couple more. The I'm just a woman sequence that I've talked about from Little Women. Again, if I had to pick a single scene from Little Women, it's probably this one just because. First of all, it's this is the sequence between Amy and Laurie and the older timeline and the you know present timeline. Um. Because first of all, I think it it gets it, it so brilliantly illustrates the movie's overall point about women's place in the economy, uh, you know, socioeconomic place uh, at this particular time period, and maybe at this at the current time period as well. Um, <coughs> it illustrates that, but also uh, from a dramatic perspective, this is the scene where. Amy and Laurie's relationship comes to a head and um, Laurie really makes the necessary shift that he needs to in order to, um, you know, uh, in order to get Amy to accept him as, uh, okay, like I I will take you as a, as a spouse, despite um, having been sort of manipulated maybe a little bit for years and having to play second fiddle to Joe. Um, you know, the, the sequence ending with him saying like, you know, you look beautiful and then changing it to say you are beautiful. I think in that little, little change of dialogue there conveys so much. And uh, yeah, it's a very quotable scene. And then lastly, the screams from Midsummer um, talked about how they play a role in the opening of the movie, but then the way that Ari Aster uses them for that amazingly cathartic moment where they're all on the floor at the end of the movie after Danny has witnessed the orgy sequence. Um, it is, is amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, a brilliant bit of filmmaking from Ari Aster. So, I mean, I could, I could go on and on, like I could probably go through every single movie that I saw this year and pick out uh, a scene that I could, could have included in the honorable mentions, but those were just some of my favorites that came to mind. Yeah, no, I think there's a couple tiers of scenes or moments of the year, all of which kind of deserve honorable mentions, but in, in sort of one tier, I put kind of moments, so to speak. So there's, you know, I think that there's a moment in Knives Out with like the, the donuts and donuts uh, line from Daniel Craig, which is just a hilarious moment that will always stick out to me in 2019. I think another one is in Jojo Rabbit uh, when he has the final scene. They get, they get their one use of the PG-13 F word um, and he kicks Hitler out a window. It is definitely the best use of the F word uh, in a PG-13 movie this year. I think there's uh, another, like another one also is from Hustlers with like Usher, the Usher scene. From Hustlers is like a great final, like the like the climax of that scene when Usher goes up to Jennifer Lopez. She says, "Who are you?" And he says, "Usher, baby." Um, that like that is a that is an icon. That'll be an iconic scene 
or sorry, an iconic moment in 2019 for me. In terms of scenes, I agree. Herb's execution is definitely one of them. Um, Leo in the trailer actually is good as Spawn Ranches. The one that sticks out to me in terms of I, this is almost more of a moment than a scene, but this sort of montage of like brief like they, they cut them apart, but uh, clips of 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 Leo in this trailer after messing up uh, one of his early scenes in the in the TV episode that he's shooting and just sort of the absolute um, grilling that he gives himself in that moment is just a beautiful piece of acting. I mean, that is that the, the whole performance of of Leo in this film as as this character really rests on a couple moments, one of which is this scene in the trailer by himself um, when he's telling how much of a useless uh, washed up sack of garbage that he is as an actor and motivating himself to go out and give, you know, arguably one of the performances of this actor's career uh, in, in the subsequent scenes uh, in the rest of the film. I think another one is game seven in Uncut Gems. I mean, the fact that the Safety brothers can make you be totally engrossed in watching Adam Sandler watch basketball for which an outcome of which like, you know, that like, you know, that you can go look up the outcome of the game. And the fact that you still are just so engrossed uh, by that scene is just, I mean, again, I'll not, I don't think there'll be a time where I don't associate, you know, that scene with being just one of the outstanding scenes of 2019. Another one, you talked about action scenes of the year and you laid out two wonderful ones, you know, whether it be John Wick or, um, I forget the other one that you mentioned already. Man, yeah. yeah, the Gemini Man scene. The one that I went with actually is from Ad Astra, the moon sequence on Ad Astra. I mean, some of the, yeah, Mad Max on the moon, on the moon was not something that I thought that I wanted. Uh, but uh, James Gray gave it to me in Ad Astra, and I think it's pretty freaking epic. Um, that scene is really cool, what they do with the audio design and sound design of that scene, along with the visuals, of course, them you know driving a rover on the moon. Uh, Brad Pitt does great work there as well. Just going through my list of other things, uh, I mean, there's like a thousand scenes from 1917 that I could call out, but the two that come to mind, top of or come to top of mind here, are the flares at night. I think you mentioned it earlier already, uh, but also the the final the final sprint scene across the uh, across the battlefield. Uh, as much as it was not planned, the fact that he ran into George Mackay ran into multiple extras in that scene just adds to uh, adds to the iconicness of that scene for me. I think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, that scene, how it's shot, how it's performed, everything about it. I absolutely love it. And uh, in, in, in terms of, and I think we're talking about the top tier now, uh, the screams from Midsommar, absolutely, absolutely one of the most emotionally overwhelming scenes of, you know, whether it be, however you want to think about it, catharsis, um, empathy, man, I, don't, I haven't seen anything like that in a movie theater before, that kind of uh, just feeling watching those, you know, these what 15 women or whatever it is scream like wail in unison together. It's unsettling, but at, at the same time, equal parts, uh, something else, just something really special. Um, and I don't know how Ari Aster came up with that to do that scene, but man, it really worked. I'm trying to think, is that anything else? I mean, that might do it, uh, to be honest. Oh, of course, the scene from Parasite uh, that stands out the most. And maybe, of course, there are a bunch. There's the finale, there's the climax, there's the end, you know, the very end of the end of the movie. But talk about choreography, uh, a scene that could that could easily be up there in terms of choreograph, well, choreograph scenes, Ramdan, uh, when she when the mother, uh, the, the mother of the Kim family gets the phone call from 
uh, Mrs. Park that they are returning in seven minutes. And if you could please make me some Ramdan and the chaos that ensues. Uh, organized chaos is the only way to describe it. And that's a wonderful scene. I don't think I will ever watch that movie and after it not want to go find Ramdan somewhere. Um, just truly a great scene. Yeah, and that segues right to my pick, which is the cooking Ramdan sequence from Parasite for sure. I think that this sequence just encapsulates everything that I love about Parasite. The, the, the whole movie is synchronized so perfectly. And I mean, it really is, it's like a Swiss watch. Um, and, and this sequence, this little seven minute sequence, I think exemplifies that. Um, it, it has every, everything it's, you know, it's, it's suspenseful, it's thrilling, it's funny like this, the, the darkly co comedic into the sequence with, uh, with Mrs. Kim kicking the housekeeper down the stairs, like as sort of the final, uh, way to punctuate the, um, scene is amazing. And, uh, the use of music is great. Um, it's, it's just, uh, mind blowing. And, and like I said, it, it's, it, it's like a Swiss watch. It's so perfectly choreographed together. Um, just like the whole movie is, I think that um, this sequence is is exemplary of that, and um, not not the my number one favorite movie of the year. But thinking about the best scenes, it was hard for me to not go immediately to this movie. Yeah, I mean that's totally fair. One thing I will say about my winner is that you said it already. It's hard to beat this scene. You did mention it in your montage. Mm -hmm. and you want to know why it's hard to beat this scene? Is because it. I think for me, it will forever. Uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, as of right now, I'm not sure I'll ever feel this way in a movie theater again. I talked about it with the screams from Midsommar, <laughs> a completely different kind of feeling. But uh, the feeling of, of watching this scene four times in theaters and each time feeling the same way, and that is the portal scene from Avengers Endgame. Man, just thinking about it still gives me chills. Uh, the reaction of the crowd, the way that it happens. I mean, you know, like you said, you know it's going to happen at some point in the movie. It has to happen. It won't be, it won't give the audience what they want if it does, but the way that they do it, it surpasses all expectations uh, for it, for the film. Seeing it the first time was incredible. Seeing it the second time was somehow even better. Seeing it the third time was just as good as the first. And man, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful scene. And just thinking about Cap saying Avengers Assemble and catching that hammer right now when I say it, and it really, really gives, puts a chill down my spine. And uh, I haven't rewatched it since the four times I saw it in theater, but I, I know the experience won't be the same watching it at home, but I will always think about those experiences I had in theaters. And, you know, if I'm able to have an experience like that in the movie theater again, man, that would be great. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to deny the impact of this scene, even for someone like me who, who wasn't as, uh, you know, all in on the, the MCU, you know, the whole way through, like you have been, um, it, it was an incredible moment, to, like just his, historic moment to be in the theater for and witness there in that opening weekend. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you chose this one. If I had to pick a, a runner up, this probably would have been the one for sure. Yeah, and, and is, to the extent that we would scoff at the idea of a, you know, popular film award at the Oscars, I mean, this scene, like 2019, there's so many amazing movies, of course, for like film Twitter, maybe Ramdan and Parasite or something like that makes sense. But if you think about the world and 2019 in movies, like Avengers Endgame, it, it is that top grossing movie of all time. It's, I mean, this movie is everything in terms of a mainstream audience that 2019 could be. And uh, the fact that it was able to deliver, we've said it a thousand times now on the podcast probably, but the fact that it was able to deliver on expectations and in some instances even surpass those expectations 
is unthinkable, especially after something like Rise of Skywalker. But man, Portals is just an incredible scene. And uh, man, I can't stop. I it, Yeah, I just, I won't ever not be able to think about that scene in 2019. All right, Scott, that's it. We made it through our awards. We were shorter runtime than the Oscars. Take that. Uh, probably uh, this was, you know, th this is like our top 10 episode, like a couple other episodes that we do uh, on an annual basis. One of my favorite episodes of the year, for sure. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarby Dent. And I'm at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast. Uh, we'd love us. <coughs> we'd love it if you followed us over there at Media Plug Pods. Uh, we'd love it even more, though, if you checked our, our podcast Patreon page out at www.patreon.com slash Media Pods. Uh, there are a bunch of different reward tiers, and even if you only contribute at the one dollar level, that would really help us out. Uh, make this a uh, make us break even at the very least for the the few expenses that we do incur for the podcast. It'd be really great if you could help us out over there. If you choose not to support us, though, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Uh, where we'd appreciate if you liked, shared, subscribed, etc., all that jazz that that you can do to help us reach a broader audience. And with that, I've said enough, and we have certainly said enough about 2019 we can finally uh put a period at the end of this book send it to send it to print uh 2019 is done uh maybe a few movies here and there that we will uh go back to and see for the first time over the years but we've set our piece and that will do it next week we will fittingly be back to talk about our most anticipated movies of 2020 man 2019 was a great year you could tell from the three hours we just talked about it uh but 2020 has a lot coming down the pike that looks pretty good as well. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott.